This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Oh, yes. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Ink Class with Dr. Gray Carr. I'm your host, Karen Hunter, and that is Dr. Gray Carr. How you doing, brother? I'm fine, sis. How you doing? It's good to be in class with you. You know, I got caught up as I do most mornings watching some stuff. So I was watching um, Steve McQueen has something on Amazon Prime called Small Axe. It's yeah, I heard uh, about it. I haven't watched it yet. How is it? It's well, I just started. First episode is short, short film, and it's 1968, the first one, London, mm-hmm. and it it follows a Jamaican family. And I was like, wherever we are in the world. Black people, we are experiencing some things, the same thing, the same time. What's going on? You got some? Uh, I'm just thinking about it. Uh, th- oh, these, okay. These, these are the young, these are the people who came from the Caribbean. There's something called the Windrush generation. Is that so, what I was reading? That's what he's so, talking about? Yeah. yeah. So um, it's, it starts in a Jamaican restaurant that's being opened, but there's a scene where there's like Black people are uh, under siege by police. And there's a scene where the cops are in the car and there's a rookie cop with a veteran cop. And he says, these Black people... These black people need to know their place. They have a place. He says, these black people have a place. It's our job to remind them. And when they step out of line, it's our job to put them back in their place. No and if they step too far out, and then he paused and he said, I wish these were the old days when we could just get rid of all of them in one fell swoop. Yeah, it was crazy. And I, I mean, was thinking, what's wrong with them? The old days never left. They do right. every day. But I was thinking about this in terms of the brotherhood the sisterhood, like wherever we are throughout the diaspora. And there are people, I got a uh, a, a message this morning from someone wondering what cla- what time class was. And I was like, it's noon. He said, well, I'm in Sweden. I'm in Sweden. Oh. Yeah. And there, there are people, hey, shout out to Renee in Switzerland. There are folks watching this class from all over the diaspora and they're black wherever they are. And I think wow. in many ways, my hope is that this class inspires people to find their doma, their griot, their, their, their truth teller, their, their history keeper, and tell the story of their place and their time, you know, as, as Steve McQueen is doing in, in London through the eyes of Jamaica, you know, through a Jamaican story, I was like, man, we got stories all over the diaspora. And it's the same story. It's the same story of freedom and fight for liberation and fight for equality and fight for, for self, you know, and as we start the conversation today, talking about brotherhood, as we uh, celebrate uh, the divine nine and, mm. particularly, you know, the founders day for mm. the alphas, I just wanted to kind of start there. No, wait, let's stay there for a minute. Let's stay there for a minute. Um, you're right. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Jacob Carruthers, one of my domas out of Texas, this brother was one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. And he always talked about, we started something in the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations called the African World History Project um, in responding to a memo that he and a think tank in Chicago created uh, called the Comedic Institute. And he said, you know, how can we rewrite or write history of African people. This was in the wake of the United Nations uh, World um, General History of Africa, which uh, their their ninth volume is in preparation now. There are eight volumes so far. And it's a wonderful multi-volume work. And if you go to the United Nations website and type in General History of Africa, for a time, you could download whole PDFs of the entire set. And they, they, have, uh, they have a couple of curriculum that, is, that are with it as well. But Carruthers' whole point was in raising the question of an African world history project, because there is no one history. We know that our experiences are too vast to catalog. 
So really it's about narrative. How do we narrate and how do we understand our experiences? How do we select out of those experiences? Narratives. And one thing uh, I'll start calling, well, yeah, we all call him Baba Jetty because his comedic name, his Egyptian name, Jetty Shimshu Jehudi, as we talked about in, in one of the end classes over the summer, the one who speaks as a follower of Jehudi, the scribe, the writer. Um, one of the things he always said was the basis of our world history imagination must be our family histories, meaning our community histories. So as folks are tuning in and, and dialing in and coming in and subscribing to the channel, make sure y'all subscribe down there. I see those numbers are jumping here, but uh, um, which is a beautiful thing. Understand that the memories you bring into this constant conversation are the memories that only you bring into the conversation. And as Jacob Carruthers would always say, Jetty Shimshu Jehudi would always say, um, it is family memory that is the basis of our collective national memory. And it's very interesting. Let me mention one other thing about this brother. I think I mentioned it over summer. I want to make, do it again because more, more and more people are coming. Um, some people may be, well, see, the narrative of, uh, of the United States, well, the so-called so official narrative, the one in the textbooks, the ones that people like uh, my uh, friend and brother Hassan Jeffries at Ohio State talks about teaching hard history and reviewing these textbooks and going over them over and over again. This past Monday, I was with uh, faculty and students in the social sciences and a prelude conference to the uh, meeting of the Association for the Social Sciences, uh, school teachers, K-12. And, you know, I, I gave a, I gave a talk, a keynote talk about some of these issues. And they were talking to the one uh, guy, Tim Patterson, who's at Temple. Very good, very good brother who's just written a piece, co-published a piece on reviewing how race and enslavement in particular is, is narrated in, in U.S. textbooks. And that's all very important work. It's all very important work because the, the, the official narratives, the ones our children get, and it's going to tie to Claudette Colvin in a minute, I think. Um, the official narratives are important to constructing this imaginary concept of American identity. The we, so to speak. Some people say, well, we as Americans, this is not our values. This is not who we are. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely who you are. But trying to imagine something different requires constructing a narrative of memory, selecting out of those experiences things you want to emphasize, and then tying them together with a narrative that explains them. Now, a lot of people, well, I don't say a lot of people, some people reject uh, memory. In fact, I just picked up this book a collaboration of a lot of young people and some not so young people called Black Futures. It's very interesting. Um, this book talks about not really being linear, talking about how blackness can't be narrated. It's all our experiences. It's, 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 it's too broad to capture, but you can capture glimpses. It's really a testament and a record of what's going on right now in the last you know few years as people are thinking about blackness. And it's, it's fascinating to me and it's very useful to me. At the same time, there's a tension between Celebrating blackness as this kind of convening of multitudes of individuals with everybody with their blackness and everybody with their concept and you bring it all together, you mix it, you remix it. This is good. This is not good. This was good this morning. Not good now. I think this is not good and good at the same time. OK, all that's beautiful. It's a great celebration of freedom. But uh, as uh, Sonny Sanchez always as we always say, yeah, but how do it free us and how do it free us? In one way, it frees us by allowing us to express ourselves. That's what we see now in popular culture. People just express themselves. It's great. It's beautiful. Do what you want to do. But at the same time, there's an institutional dimension. How do you link that individual capacity that has been enhanced by your ability to express yourself to institutional transformation? Because individuals don't beat institutions. 
And these people still got their foot on that neck. Who are these people? These people are people who do two things. Number one, they have a concept of who they are. Shout out to the dozens of millions who voted for a white nationalist in the last election because you are you want to maintain that and you're willing to die for it, as we see as you run around maskless talking about your rights. But so there's that. But there's also then this kind of unspoken assumption that we, meaning those of us who aren't part of that white nationalist project, either hard white nationalists like those who say we don't care. Or soft white nationalists who will say, well, we got to keep chasing them. Shout out to the Democratic Party who continue to think they can chase these hard white nationalists when everybody knows better. But no, we have to because we, we're Americans and we're just going to have to work this out. But they think they can recruit the rest of us into this by, you know, slowly, incrementally dropping in a few more of our experiences into this imaginary narrative. So we'll revise the textbooks a little bit. We won't call you slaves no more. We'll say enslaved. And yes, we'll, we'll talk about your agency, the black women in Monticello or even Sally Hemings. We'll, we'll drop some people in here with black resistance. And, and but, but, but here's, the, here's what we can't, uh, this is the thing we can't do. We can't let their flag fall on the ground. So we, if we need to make Nat Turner an American hero, hell, if we need to make John, John Brown an American hero, we'll do it as long as you keep your hand on that flag. Please keep raising it, because the minute you drop that flag, we got a problem. We're going to talk about Fred Hampton in here in a minute. And it, the problem isn't Black nationalism. The problem isn't coalition politics between different groups of people, except the problem is when you do any of those things and do it with a larger vision, a larger vision. Who was it that said, I think it was Du Bois actually who wrote that line, life lit with some larger vision of purpose, one that transcends that flag, that each, each star and each stripe on there representing settler colonialism. When you let that flag touch the ground, now we got a problem. Now, you know, and if y'all turn away from that flag, we got a problem. And so, you know, I'm saying I like to say that what, what, what Baba Jetty would always remind us of, he said, start with the family histories and what will emerge is we have never bought into that narrative. And the more we know, the more our life is lit by some larger vision of humanity. And that is the genius of, uh, of a Jacob Carruthers, a, a, a genius. And, and so I, I'll say one more thing about Carruthers and then we'll come keep going because this really talks about that Windrush generation. And like I say, uh, as, as Bob Marley, I think that's where uh, Brother McQueen took that title from. You know, uh, you are the large tree, we are the small axe. That was, uh, you know, Bob Marley and the Whalers, Bunny Whaler and Elmer Adams saying, you know, you know, you might think you're in control empire, but we're the ones who are going to chop you down. And in another song, we're going to run them crazy ball heads out of town. I mean, you know, this is the this is the thrust of uh, Rastafarianism. This is the thrust of the Nyabingi movement, the thrust of the Garvey movement. This is the thrust that we see expressed in the words and the music in the thrust of ska and reggae. And this is the, the, the thrust of uh, Bob Marley reaching across the ocean, the Haile Selassie I you know, to, to take the literal name Rastafari and make it the name of the movement. So that, that, that idea of the small X comes out of that. And I'm glad to see Brother McQueen continue to grow because quite frankly, uh, you know, something like 12 years a slave, I mean, in some ways it's trauma porn, but he continues to grow. I heard him in dialogue with Cornel West um, talking about Paul Robeson. And it's important. I'm glad to see him continue to learn, continue to grow, because as we learn, we improve. And I'm looking forward to see Smollett, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, sometimes our entry point, you always talk about an entry point. Maybe he was a Trojan horse. Maybe he knew that 
Hollywood is obsessed with seeing black people in chains and in bondage. So he gave them what they wanted, won that Oscar and gave himself carte blanche to tell the stories he really wanted to see. I, I, I'm speaking for myself as well. Sometimes we got to get into a place to change mm-hmm. a place. Somebody's got to be, they infiltrate our, you, you're going to talk about Fred Hampton. They infiltrate us all yeah. the time. It's time for the infiltration. I'm, I won't say no, anymore. No, no. You know, this is very important because we have a common objective and we don't always share with everybody what our plot and planning is. We are in complete lockstep agreement. One of my challenges as a person in the world, as a person of African descent in the world is because, you know, like you, I'm in dialogue with as many different kind of people as I can think of. I spent a lot of time with maroon Negroes. <laughs> in other words, a, a genius of the modern era, like the great Haile Grima, he and his wife, Shrikiana, the ones who own Sankofa. I spent a lot of time with Baba Haile. Haile Grima could be one of the biggest filmmakers in Hollywood, but he, Larry Clark, um, Charles Burdett, just as they were tr- transitioning out, Julie Dash and them, they all were at in film school out there in California, and they call them the L.A. Rebellion. He said, we didn't name ourselves. We just wanted to learn these tools. Highly came out of Gundaller, Ethiopia. His father was a theater man, a storyteller. He said, I just want to tell stories. I came to Chicago to to, to learn storytelling. I ended up in L.A. as a filmmaker. And so when he and Shriek make uh, Sankofa, it's a statement. He said, everybody ain't got to go to Hollywood because I'm not even going to ever negotiate. There are stories our people need to be able to tell from our position that we don't have to try to figure. In fact, I'm glad you said point of entry because I'll never forget a couple of years ago, Haile spoke to our freshmen at Howard in our freshman seminar uh, uh, class, 1,500 students. Well, no, not at that time, probably about maybe like 1,200. And Haile said that, uh, you know, Hollywood requires a point of entry in black films. Who is the white character? Because their idea is you're not, well, they wouldn't say this, but of course it's what it is. Y'all not human enough for white people to care about you. We need a white person as a point of entry so that they will come to the movie for the white person, like Brad Pitt in 12 Years a Slave. Or um, we will come into the, the uh, or Army, Army Hammer, you know, and, um, and what was my man, Nate Parker, they trashed him for it, but it was a tragic because it was actually a very interesting film, uh, Birth of a Nation. You know, you need a white character so that the white box office will come because black people and non-white people all day. In fact, Claudette Colvin, the, uh, the sister who we're going to talk about in a minute was named, she, she was told family history of mom and them, she was named for Claudette Colvin, the white movie star back in the 30s and 40s. So, I mean, so but we're expected to see humanity in white people. They can't see it in us, so they need a white point of entry. And so what, what Hiley would always say is when he would make a film, and he, and he knows all these cats. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but think about any black director, any black Hollywood person, you know, when they encounter Hiley and shrieking on, you know, he, he, they'll talk to Hiley. And then one time there was a conversation with some, with, a, with a director who's now an ancestor. I won't name him because, you know, Hiley, he said, the brother told Hiley, said, how can you make these films? They would never let me make these films. Hiley said, he looked at him and said, yeah, I let myself, I let myself. And so when you're in dialogue with that stream, and then we look at the fact that here we are in 2000, 
and we see whether it be Lovecraft Country, whether it be Small Acts, whether it be Watchmen, whether it be the kind of films that are making their way, you know, and, and uneven quality for sure. I mean, you know, for every 12 Years a Slave and Harriet, you know, we might you know, get a birth of a nation. I mean, and so we see that those reach uh, because of platform and because of weaponized political economy, understand finance. In fact, there's a very good book by Peter James Hudson. It's called Dark Finance. He talks about the history of, you know, enslavement in the context of who financed it. Enslavement and colonialism in the Caribbean in particular. And, and, and Professor Hudson, good brother, Hudson makes this point. He says, you know, we often narrate oppression and enslavement and colonialism through labor, appropriation, labor theft, of course, uh, brutality, through the political economy of the plantation. He says, but behind that is the invisible, real sinews of the project, the thing that knits it together, the thing that sustains it, and the thing thereafter, which is profit. And that's an immaterial concept, the finance, the dark finance. And so in a minute of a pandemic where you got people standing in soup lines, the equivalent of soup lines from the 30s and 40s, food pantries, People by the millions worried about the fact that the December of the 31st of this month, unless this feckless old ghoul from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, doesn't do something, uh, people are going to get evicted. You got 7 million people, at least 7 million threatening with threatening with eviction. You got all this going on. Meanwhile, the billionaires in this country have made a third of a third more of their wealth. Elon Musk from Tesla, and you know these numbers better than I do because you deal with this stuff all the time. Elon Musk from Tesla has like tripled his wealth. Uh, Bezos, Amazon, which is hiring as if those jobs can sustain anybody on the wages they pay, has moved now. Uh, he's he's gained, I think, 60 or 70 billion. Mark Zuckerberg was actually worth less than Warren Buffett at the beginning of this pandemic. And since March, he has passed Warren Buffett in the in the fast zone. He's in the hundreds of billions now. And I'm saying all that because, you know, people on Facebook, you know, uh, Buffett's an investor, different kind of class. But the point I'm trying to make is that this extreme inequality is all about finance capital. So when you make a Hollywood film, we need people in those spaces because when they make something, Everybody going to see it. They're going to dump it on all the internet. It's going to be released on Home Box Office or Disney Plus, and everybody gets to see it at once. So we need that point of entry at the same time that we need the Haile Garimas and the Shrikiana Ainas and all those who will say, we're not going to play that role. The trick is we have to, if we, we must think about coordinating behind the scenes in terms of our common objective, because what's always at stake, we start talking about imagery and imaging and narratives. What's always at stake is, is the imagination of, or is our imagination, particularly the imagination of our young people. What fires our imagination? And what is always at the core of the black imagination is liberation, whether people want to admit it or not. We go into a movie expecting not to see liberation, but we get a little hint of it, we gravitate toward it, as we talked about before. That's why Marvel has to bring back our brother Michael B. Jordan. Why? Because they made Black Panther and everybody think, oh, T'Challa going to be the hero. Yeah, then Killmonger, they realize these niggas cheering for Killmonger. Damn. Why? Because you showed us a little bit of the thing that's in our heart. <laughs> James Brown said, I'm mad. I want revenge. The big payback. I like this dude right here. So now you got a nuance that. And now that our brother Chad Bozeman is an ancestor, you know, in the comic books, Letitia Wright's character, Shuri, will become the Black Panther. But now I think they, I'm sure they're having behind the scenes conversations. I mean, can we make Killmonger? The Black Panther, in the comic books, it actually happens a, a couple of times on the various narratives that are straight. But anyway, so uh, we're in lockstep agreement. 
our ultimate objective is liberation, not just for black people, but for humanity. And ultimately, that means we got to do a better job of being human in the world in concert with every other living organism before this ball reset and get rid of all of us. So that's the ultimate objective. Now, how we pursue that objective is a question of tactic and strategy, as we've talked about before. And so, yeah, we're in lockstep agreement. Some of us got to be in those spaces. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to see Small Acts as you, as you began talking about it. I, I pulled this off the shelf. This is one of the books that's published back in the 80s, I think 1980, no, no, 90s, 1998. It's published in Great Britain first. It's called Windrush, The Irresistible Rise of Multiracial Britain. Now, the Windrush was the ship that around 500 folks from the Caribbean made a month-long journey to come to, uh, to Great Britain. That happened in the 1940s. So from what I've read and from what you're now watching, along with a lot of people who are probably watching this now, small acts and what I'm, what I'm going to watch shortly, you know, it traces some of those networks of relationship. And that's a beautiful thing because now we're beginning to tell our stories. And now because of the momentum of the market, that dark finance is now having to, uh, having to adjust to the fact that more and more consumers are non-white. And if they're going to maintain the type of control which means profit for them. The type of control that they uh, they set out to create when they created this network, they're going to have to give us more and more of us. Now the question becomes, you know, their ultimate objective is profit, but you know, the political equivalent of that in the United States would be like, don't drop that flag now, just keep saluting the flag. We'll we'll do whatever you want. You want to make it red, black, and green? No problem. You want to add a few colors? No problem. But just keep the flag. Now the question in the corporate uh, counterpart of that would be. Look, just don't walk away. Now, you know, Tyler Perry, of course, you know, whatever his politics are or aren't, and this ain't no time we could tell we could do a whole thing just having a conversation thing. Even a couple of good books on Tyler Perry have been written in the last few years. But whatever people say or don't say, he owned that property in Georgia. And he, in other words, it's almost like Tyler Perry is sitting somewhere between a Holly Green and a Steve McQueen. And, and I don't mean in terms of politics. I mean, in terms of this question of independence. Because politically, you can make the argument in terms of social class that Tyler Perry emerges with his theater, with his stage play. I won't say theater because it really wasn't theater, you know, stage plays. Um, he emerges as somebody who taps into those collective me memories that Jake Ruz is talking about. But it's not a political sensibility. It's more of a, like a cultural sensibility. Those church plays and things like that. All this, I can do all that all by myself. All that Medea stuff that started out touring all around the country and then converts into those kind of guerrilla filmmaking thing. Then Hollywood's like, oh, we can put a man in the dress. We've been doing that for years. Go back and see Flip Wilson on here. I mean, you, no problem. Yeah. So then, but you don't know, realize that what rides in on that and on that box office is revenue that he's thinking, oh, what's the ultimate objective? Ownership. Yeah, I'd like to get green lit. Yeah, Hollywood does these movies, these uh, husky movies and these little morality plays I'm trying to drop in. But ultimately, he buys that property. He got all the sound stages. Now, if you want to make a movie, we come down here. Everybody from Eddie Murphy to Nick Cannon, everybody wilding out with being produced down there. They may come into America too down there. I mean, so, but but ultimately, that's somewhere between. That's somewhere between those two positions. And we need the whole thing on the continuum if we're going to get to liberation. Um, so let's think about this in terms of the topics that you kind of conceived over the week. Here we are on the 5th of December and three kind of emerged. And, and you know, you texted me and say, oh, these are great. This is inspired. Um, one of course is 
the assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, um, 1969 in Chicago. The other is uh, the uh, the so-called sitting stand of our sister Rosa McCauley Parks, December 1955. And uh, the third is the Divine Nine. I mean, you know, somebody had asked a question on Twitter and you respond and said, oh, should we talk about this? I said, yeah. So, you know, this is one of the few times everybody who knows me would laugh if they, you know, I mean, they're gonna see me in this right here. This is one of the few things Alpha Phi Alpha I own. <laughs> you know, I got my little Alpha hoodie, you know, my little A5A, I rock that. Yeah, I, I, I pledged, what, 35 years ago, 35 years ago, Tennessee State, Beta Omicron chapter, the bloody B.O. as they called it back in the days. But um, I guess they still call it that. But the idea of community is the thing that ties all these things together. The Montgomery bus boycott, the Black the Illinois chapter, the Black Panther Party, where Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were assassinated, um, ties together the so-called Divine Nine, which is the nine college, collegiate Greek letter organizations. And there are other Greek letter organizations. The oldest one in this country, of course, isn't Alpha Phi Alpha, founded in 1906 at Cornell University, but is, uh, is an organization founded two years before that by six medical doctors, Henry Minton being the, 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 the kind of uh, mind behind it in Philadelphia. And that's Sigma Pi Phi, the, uh, the so-called Boule, as people call it. In fact, it's so funny, I'm not a member of the Boule. Uh, you know, I don't know the next time if I ever have a tie around my neck in a black suit. And that ain't, that ain't no shade to the Boule. I mean, you gotta move in a certain way to move in those spaces and, and more power to them. We need everybody, right? But, uh, but I do have all the history books, Charles Wesley, Charles Harris Wesley, good friends with Carter Woodson, one time president of Central State University, Wilberforce, um, uh, minister, pastor, Amy Church. Uh, Charles Wesley, historian, uh, got his PhD from Harvard after uh, uh, Carter Woodson. He was the founding director of the Museum of African American History in Philadelphia in 1976. Uh, there, my good friend Charles Bloxon, who's still there in Philadelphia, my man, Mr. B, who I used to work for you know, friends with, with Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley wrote the history of many of these social organizations. He wrote the histories of the ones he was in and some that he wasn't in. He wrote the history of the Prince Hall Masons. He's a Prince Hall Mason and Prince Hall predates all of them. In fact, Prince Hall comes into existence right around the same time that the first Greek letter organization in the United States comes into existence. And that one, today's the fifth. <laughs> Two hundred and forty-four years ago today, Phi Beta Kappa was founded as an academic liberal arts fraternity, and it becomes kind of the template, a framework for these other kind of collegiate or or, or, or education-based uh, fraternities and sororities. Phi Beta Kappa, which is a liberal arts uh, 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 liberal arts entity, academic. You know, even everybody at a university can't be a member of Phi Beta Kappa. In fact. One of my best students that I've had in, since I've been teaching, the 30 years I've been teaching, brilliant sister. She never made less than an A until she got to law school. And and the one that wasn't an A was like a arbitrary, graduated second in her class from Howard, was edited Howard Law Review, brilliant sister. You know, she doesn't have a Phi Beta Kappa key at Howard because she came out of the School of Communications and Phi Beta Kappas are located in the school, in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, that's where it is at Howard. And um, Howard is one of only a handful of HBCUs with a Phi Beta Kappa chapter. In fact, Phi Beta Kappa was, uh, let me see, Howard, Morehouse and Spelman, and Fisk. 
um, somebody can correct me in the in the in the chat. I think that's it. I remember one, I remember one time we were at a faculty meeting, and I call it set tripping because you know all these things are gangs in some way. I said, and I'm not using gang as a pejorative. I'm saying community, like the Windrush generation, right? Being portrayed in small acts, like like Africans on the plantation. Like, I mean, like the L.A. Rebellion. I mean, you know, these are these are formations. So I call them gangs because you know you get initiated into these things. You're expected as you're going through initiation to build a bond with the people who are in it. And once you're in it, you're expected to have fidelity to this group, loyalty to this group, and advance the common purpose. You see that in the so-called divine man. But I remember one time we had a faculty meeting and uh, it was near the end of the year. And the sister who was the advisor at the time to the Phi Beta Kappa chapter at Howard was talking about Phi Beta Kappa. And she said, you know, I'm Phi Beta Kappa. And then they started talking about where they went to school. Now these are, this is the Harvard, the Stanford's. And then you had a couple of black folk in there who were um went to HBCUs, but they went to Fisk, but they went to Spelman or more. So they said, oh, yes, I'm five, or Howie, I'm five of the Captain. So then I'll never forget my good friend Barbara Griffin, who at the time was the associate dean for the humanities at, at Howard. She was like, <clears throat> I'm an HBCU graduate, and I am a member of the Greek letter uh, honor society that was founded at HBCUs, Alpha Kappa Mu. And so she goes into her blouse and comes out with her uh, her necklace with the with her key, because <laughs> Phi Beta Kappa they give you a key, well you got to buy the key. But Alpha Kappa Mu, which was founded at my alma mater, Tennessee State University, George Gore, I think 1934, I guess they that's that is the Black Academic Honor Society. So she comes out with her key, Alpha Kappa Mu. And I'm looking around in the auditorium and I started laughing because I was brought into Alpha Kappa Mu as a senior at Tennessee State. And I said, yeah. And then you start seeing people all over the faculty meeting, College Bar and Science, say, yeah, we all Alpha Kappa Mu. And they was like, you Phi Beta Kappa Negroes, y'all just blackface. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was so funny to me. And, and the reason I say that is because as George G.M. James, who was out in Arkansas, University of Arkansas, Pine Bluff, and wrote in his 1954 book, Stolen Legacy. He said, why are y'all imitating the Greeks anyway? But the problem is what you see is a car crash there between African community, people of African descent being together, coming together in formation, and the fact that we're having to do it in an environment in a hostile anti-black environment, in a hostile environment of white nationalism and settler colonialism, that that extend to us the only tools we see as immediately available to come together. And as Audre Lorde would always ask, you know, and many people have riffed on this over the years, you know, you know, she's well, she declares she said a master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. And so George G.M. James thing is, yeah, I understand why y'all want to get together, but why y'all gotta keep using these Greek letters? And so part of it is because we haven't recovered our languages in the way that we brought them here. We haven't recovered our structures in the ways that we brought them here, or more importantly, black futures, I think is a good example of this. We haven't tapped into those continuities in a way for us to re-narrate our way ourselves enough. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about those Greek letters, but those those three things in particular, and then in a minute, I'm quite I'm asking which one you want to do first, because we can tie them all together. But I do want to make this one point while we're still here on it. The the first 
the first social formation to emerge in that kind of structure of uh, formal, fraternal, sororal kind of, the first one to emerge is the Masons. And these are Africans. You know, Prince Hall was out of Barbados, Boston area, whatever. This is during the so-called American Revolution, right after the American Revolution, 1787, 1786, 87. The Prince Hall Masons, the Orders of the Eastern Star, the Daughters of Isis, the Pythians, I mean, these groups, particularly the Prince Hall Masons and the Orders of the Eastern, Order, or Order of the Eastern Star, these are much more uh, pervasive, particularly in the pre and during Jim Crow South. You know, it's, it's more important to be a Mason in these little towns and these places in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. And, because the Masons, you don't go to college to be a Mason. In fact, the overwhelming majority of these people are not college graduates, although there are a number of them who are now. But th this is a mutual, these are mutual aid societies. We're going to get, you know, burial insurance and take care of somebody. Somebody passed, we got to come in and not only do the burial, but take care of their family after that. And what do you need? These are the things. So they're deeply serviced. That's very African. The, the fraternities and sororities emerged later with that similar sensibility, but that is part of the tiny black group that is now forcing its way into college. I'm going to pause there and ask how you want to proceed. I'm sorry, Karen. And then we can talk about all of these three things. Oh, no, I just wanted to know, you know, why you pledged and if you if you were starting, if you were, you know, because there's the, I don't want to create friction. You know, my daddy was a Q. I love the, you know, the, even though I never understood the Greek thing with Africans, but I'm going to let it go. But, I, you know, I don't want to disparage because I think there's an important service and opportunity for us to, again, infiltrate use those, you know, we have a Greek letter person as vice president who probably will be president at some point, right? Kamala Harris is AKA, correct? Mm -hmm. she, is is. There, she is. Is is there an opportunity to use these organizations to do more? I know a lot of them are doing a lot, but I feel like they're not doing it with this, what we were talking about earlier, the way I may see Steve McQueen right now as a Trojan horse entry point to to free us. Do it free us? Uh, Do the organizations free us? You know, that's a complicated question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I say yes and no. Um, I say yes and no. Um, you know, when we think of these organizations, and I'll just run down right quick. I was mentioning Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley not only wrote the history of the Prince Hall Masons, the Elks, his fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, include, so the Alpha History book I'll show you in a minute, the one that got me interested in Alpha, and I'll tell you that quick story. Um, he also wrote the history of Sigma Pi Phi, the so-called Boule, the first Greek-led organization of African people uh, in 1904, because uh, he was a member. And, and the Boule, Sigma Pi Phi, is the one organization that you can belong to, that, that you can also belong to one of the uh, fraternities and sororities, the other fraternities, or the college fraternities and sororities. So Alpha, you know, Kappa, uh, Kiru, um, um, Iota Phi Theta, you know, Sigma, Phi Beta Sigma. If you're a dude, you can belong to, uh, and in fact, I didn't even, I didn't pull any of the links. I'm sorry. I got the links histories over here. Marjorie Parker actually wrote the history of links. She was an AKA. So you can belong to the links and a sorority. Uh, actually, I got her history. Well, this other thing, people, you know, I think I, just about all of them have all the sorority and fraternity history books. 
And there have been several iterations for some. Some of them are the official ones, and then they have other ones they do kind of public facing. Uh, there have been several Sigma Pi Phi history books, Charles Wesley, uh, Sidney Hobart. Uh, got a couple of volumes of that book. And then there's this kind of li little bit more public facing book, actually Kepper Burns, one half of the Susan Taylor Kepper Burns team, right? Uh, he was one of the writers of Sigma Pi Phi Fraternity of Century. I, 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 pick, I just pulled one to show Sigma Pi Phi. But these were medical doctors. These were cats who were already accomplished. It's 1904. It's the beginning of the century. And so what you see is, and there are a couple of good books about this. One of my frat brothers, uh, Gregory Parks, has written uh, several books on fraternity and sorority life, including one good book he co-wrote on the, the subject um, of where these fraternity sororities come from. They're all 20th century inventions. The first decade of 20th century, you see Sigma Pi Phi. Alpha Phi Alpha comes next. And it's interesting because there is a book. Let me see if I can reach it because I was looking. I was looking for the Fred Hampton book, which I couldn't put my hands on, but I got a couple of others here, but I, I remember the title and I'll, I'll show it to you. This is a book that Elizabeth Dowling Taylor did a couple of years ago called The Original Black Elite, Daniel Murray and the Story of Forgotten Era. Uh, this is uh, Daniel Murray here, Daniel Alexander Palmer Murray, who was here in Washington, D.C. It's a very good book. And I'm also mindful as we continue to walk this journey. Some books I'm mentioning are hard to get, but I'm, I'm trying to incorporate more and more books that people can get fairly uh, affordably and fairly easily. And that's going to be particularly important in the second we start talking about Claudette Colvin and, and Rosa Parks. So again, you know, subsidize these black bookstores. And I'm not saying Kofa. I saw folks now catching on, you know, SO1 and them, they doing stuff. I mean, we want to make sure out there in LA. So that haven't been said. Uh, Hakeem's bookstore in, in, in Philadelphia. But um, what happens is Murray Murray's son is one of the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha. Now, why are these fraternities and sororities, these college-based fraternities and sororities, 20th century phenomenon? Duh. Because they are. Black people aren't in enough numbers at the white schools, or the black ones for that matter, to, 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 to build them out yet. You know, the earliest HBCUs, Lincoln and Cheney, predate the Civil War, the 1837 for the Institute of Colored Youth. In fact, one of the best books, and there are a lot of people writing on HBCUs now. And of course, I read all that stuff and it's very useful. And this isn't to, you know, disparage any of them, but um, I feel some kind of way about folks who are sitting at HWCUs, writing about HBCUs, uh, you know, and they are full, full HBCU supporters. And so I don't have any problem with them doing that work. My challenge is that um, HBCUs continue, historically black colleges and universities continue to do the work, which uh, in many ways uh, pushes back against the time and, uh, and the investment of resources and don't have the resources to really just sit around and think through stuff and write stuff. So what you see is a steady stream of scholarship about HBCUs written out of HWCU valences. And that's cool. And I'm going to read it all, but what I'm not going to do is co-sign that that is the authority. It would never be the authority in my mind. This is actually a very good book. You want to get a single volume on America's historically black colleges and universities, a narrative history, 1837, which is when Cheney was founded. Uh, Cheney wasn't founded as Cheney. Cheney was founded as the Institute for Colored Youth. It was in Philly. It later uh, moves out to rural Southwest Pennsylvania, becomes um, 
Cheney University. That's why Cheney says it's the oldest, even though Ashman Institute, 1854, then 55, 56, uh, which eventually becomes Lincoln University nearby, ironically, the Cheney is founded. And they say they're the first. Then, of course, there's Wilberforce out there in Ohio in 1850s who say, well, no, we, we're in the conversation, too. And that's the AME Church. Uh, so it, it's important to understand that. But, but all of them predate the Civil War. The flood of HBCUs, however, relatively speaking, comes after the Civil War. After Africans have fought to, to, uh, to stop enslavement, after the country has realized that not only is it not economically profitable, it's politically unwise, they've stopped the South from creating an empire that they wanted to run our way through the bottom of South America. And so then they, 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 we're going to do this thing now. And some people will call that really the first founding because the Africans weren't supposed to be in it. And the Native Americans, we're not human. So, you know, we were brought here to work. There were no promises. People say, we need to make the American promise real. I said, I don't want the American promise. Why? The American promise was, get your ass on that boat, get off and work, and when you die, oh, have some babies, because we're going to work them to death, too. That's the promise. <laughs> now, if you're talking about building a, a new place, then, yeah, we can have a conversation. But stop trying to back map this narrative into history. You cannot, you cannot rehabilitate these cats. But anyway, so after the Civil War, you see, here's the fundamental challenge. Oh, I'm sorry. The the writer of this, which is a reason, another reason I support this book, Africa's Historically Black College University, a fine historian out of Arkansas, out of Arkansas, Dr. Bobby Lovett. Bobby Lovett, my old professor at Tennessee State. Well, he actually worked in, in he actually went to Arkansas A&M. He's from Memphis. There he is, Bobby Lovett, born in Memphis, Tennessee, went to Booker T. Washington High School. That's another Claudette Coleman tie in a minute. We'll, we'll connect that in a second. But as Dr. Lovett talks about, because he's an HBCU professor, history professor. He was a dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at, uh, at Tennessee State as well. He's writing about black colleges as a scholar who's writing from the inside at tremendous sacrifice. It took him really till he was retired till he could go do this work. So again, no shade to the people who sit up and get grants and have exorbitant salaries and write about black colleges from lofty purchase of HWCUs. Now, a little bit of shade to those who would then say, we need to quote that stuff first. No, I don't quote it first. Never, never. You tell your own story. That's a Jacob Carruthers line. You tell your own damn story. So at any rate, by the time you get to the to the last quarter of the 20th of uh, the 19th century, you've got black people coming in critical mass. Small numbers, but enough to have a little bit of a critical mass at these newly formed institutions. Fisk, 1866, Russ College, 1866, uh, Howard, 1867, the national HBCU, so to speak, because it's in Washington, D.C. It ultimately receives a federal charter. And the idea is that it can never discriminate against race because there's a 14th Amendment that says you can't discriminate against race. And this is part of it's kind of a neither fish nor fowl, a public, private, federal, private kind of entity. And so it's kind of like the, uh, you know, in some ways, Howard is to black America the way. Uh, Notre Dame may be to the Catholics. And so it's, it's not a regional institution. Uh, in fact, there are a couple of, uh, there, there are several history books of Howard, none in the last, uh, last generation, but uh, the first one is a little first 50 years book by Oliver, Dwight Oliver Wendell Holmes. The second is a book that was published in 1940, the 75th anniversary called Howard University, the Capstone of Negro Education. Uh, and the third uh, is a book published by Rayford Logan and, and a committee of Howard folks in 1967 uh, at the 100th anniversary called Howard University, the first 100 years. The reason I mentioned them is the second of the three books, Howard University, the Capstone of Negro Education by Walter Dyson. Dyson says near the end of the book, Walter Dyson, Walter L. Dyson, professor at Howard University, he says, 
My thinking about this is Howard University should be the place that black college students who go to the HBCUs, this is before Jim Crow is over, so who are going to the schools in their states, in their regions, where the tuition is much cheaper, then get a solid undergraduate education. Howard is the place you come after you've gotten that first degree. And Howard should be a professional and graduate school. So this is where the doctors will come from. This is where the lawyers will come from. This is where the masters and PhD uh, black people will come from in a Jim Crow system. It's very interesting, hence the nickname, although that isn't the only source of the nickname, but hence the concept, the capstone of Negro education. This is where you should go. So we shouldn't really be in the business of undergraduate education. Now you fast forward from 1940 to 1967 and you see Rayford Logan and his crew and how the first hundred years kind of saying, well, we're increasingly doing undergraduate education, but we must achieve a dual aim. And he's tapping into this resolution that's passed by the Board of Trustees on the mission statement of Howard University. And they're saying, you know, we must not discriminate against anyone by race. And at the same time, we must. So that's one of our objectives. we got to have an open university. Anybody, any background, race, creed, color, come here. But we must, and here's the second one, the second aim, we must pay particular interest and have deep investment in Black people, which he would say Negroes. He couldn't stand the word Black. That's a whole conversation for another day, Rayford Logan. Kenneth Jenkins has done a book on it. But Logan's papers, the Library of Congress, some of the stuff is how you say, you say Black, Logan is going to shade you for real. So at any rate, but he's saying, so, you know, we must focus on these American Negro youth in part because of discrimination, persistent discrimination, persistent kind of racial discrimination. And Logan's a Pan-Africanist, Logan sees the international, but he says, until that is eradicated, this must be our special dual aim as well. The, the second of the dual aims. One is the open university model for everybody. The second is the special emphasis on black people because we got to face discrimination. And ironically, ironically, that's where the tension is. Because anytime you keep defining yourself against, as a group that's being oppressed, oppression becomes a central element, common oppression of your identity. So what happens when the oppression goes away? Seven years before W.E.B. Du Bois in his uh, book, Education of Black People, again, I say this book again, y'all get this book, it's very important. The last essay in there, the last speech in there is a speech he gave at Johnson C. Smith University a couple of months uh uh, a month after SNCC is founded and a couple of months before he and Shirley leave to go to Africa and Asia, he says, these laws are going to change. And then you're going to have to solve the real issues. The real issues we have are issues of race and culture. Once these laws change and you're integrated, you're going to disappear. Will your aims and ideals, and he says this, will your aims and ideals become the aims and ideals of Americans? Will you physically disappear? Will you try to uh, co-mingle your way outside out of blackness? I mean, what? But if you haven't decided what you want to be after you have take, gotten rid of these chains, then you're still going to be defined by the thing because they're going to say, well, okay, you're free now. Now what? Well, um, can I come over there with you? But see, what black people have always done, I would say the majority, right? People say, what's the empirical data? Look at your experience. We have never wanted to sacrifice our community, our sense of self, our formations on the altar of dissolving into this whiteness. We just simply haven't done it. And so, you know, Martin Luther King says that to the Georgia Teachers and, Edu Georgia Teachers and Educators Association in um, 
in the first pages of this book, The Lost Education of Horace Tate, Vanessa Siddle Walker. I've been, you know, I teach it every fall in my education in Black America class. He said, integration don't mean we give up everything we had. Horace Tate, who was the president of that association, says, yo, I'm not for uh, integration, meaning what? I just give myself over to this thing. Now, integration, if that means we get the same resources, we get the same stuff, we can do whatever we want, including if we go to school with y'all, we don't go to school with y'all. We got partnerships. That's all good. But I'm not going to sacrifice my whole life force to advance your white project. And King says that as well. Du Bois is saying as well. Rayford Logan is saying the dual aims of Howard University is going to be, you know, make sure everybody can go to school. Okay, that's great. That's a very broad and noble concept. And then we're going to focus on black people because black people, you know, need it. Okay, that's good. But what about the positive assertion of what it means to be an African person in the world? Where is the space for that as a formal conversation? And so, and then this, this all ties to fraternity sororities in this way. Oh, I should mention parenthetically that right at the moment when that conversation is being held, the late 60s, the black students are taking over buildings. They take over the buildings at Howard. They take over the buildings with other people at San Francisco State. They do all this work. And what do you see happen? They say, we need black studies. We need, uh, we need, we need the HBCUs to be a black university. We shouldn't be conforming. And they're, they're going to try to solve Du Bois's question from the student perspective. Say, well, I haven't read everything yet. I haven't studied everything yet, but I'm trying and I'm moving. And I know one thing, I don't want to be a black-faced version of white people. And so that in many ways is number one, still the tension at the heart of the black studies concept. Still the tension. It's not about anti-racism. In many ways, the anti-racist movement uh, you see that in the roots of a place like Howard University. They're, produ they're producing people to fight Jim Crow before. And the second thing that you see this tension at is the history of the HBCUs, which haven't yet resolved the question of what they will be culturally, what they will be in terms of something distinct except just a place to pump people into the job market and somehow push kick the can down the road as to the questions of race and culture that Du Bois mentioned. The, the, the fraternities and sororities have those two strains, have two strains, have two strains. The first strain they have is these are black people, which means, especially during and after World War II, at the HBCUs in particular, these are black people who come out of black community formations, whether they be trapped behind the walls of Jim Crow or whether, or for, for whatever reasons, they're, they're in Black community formations. They are coming out of Black community formations. There are a few of them, like Daniel uh, Alexander Paul McMurray's son, who went to Cornell, uh, who are second generation in the 19-teens. The 19, there are a few of them whose father went to Howard, and I'm going to Howard. Okay, there are a couple of them. My father went to Fisk. I'm going to Fisk, like a Yolande Du Bois, W.B. and uh, Nina Du Bois' daughter who goes to Fisk, right? I mean, so there, there are a few, but most of them, most of them first generation, like I was, you know, first generation and their family go to school, which is no celebration. It's just a testament to the fact we didn't have the institutions because I'm the first in my family to go to college. Okay, that's a source of community pride, but it's also a source of critique of the structure you're in. So, but as they're coming into this place, Sigma Pi Phi, 1904, these are black medical doctors. They've got their degrees. They're HBCU graduates, most of them. They said, we're going to come together because we got a little money. We got some social standing in this city in Philadelphia and other places. And we want to use that to kind of pull together some social affiliation with each other. It's a talented TIFF concept. 
Do they see themselves as leaders of the race? In some ways, yeah, because they're role models, right? Walking down the street, they umbrella, little black kids. Oh, that's Dr. Henry Minton. He's my position. Well, okay, yeah, I want to be like you. Okay, son, that's what you want to do? Come on, I'm going to let you come hang out at the office. I mean, so there's that type of role model kind of thing. But they want something a little more. They want affiliation, in part to protect themselves against this hostile anti-black environment they're in. Philadelphia ain't no, you know, no nirvana, ain't no heaven. And they also want to provide some pathways to some more black people because what's being developed with the concept of the HBCU in particular is the idea of a black leadership class, a black leadership class. So very quickly, I do this, this is not gonna take much long at all. The history of the divine nine as it relates to what we're talking about. Most of the nine collegiate sororities and fraternities are founded at HBCUs. Almost all of them, all but one of the ones who are at HBCUs, the latest one, uh, Oda Phi Theta, was founded at Morgan State University in 1963. Um, so that was an HBCU founded fraternity, the last of the Divine Nine in terms of time. A service, you know, they all got service in their name, they all doing the same thing. The first of the nine to be founded was founded at a white school. Why? Because Murray's uh, son and these other brothers who were up there at Cornell University, which is, you know, got a, a tiny number of blacks, they're saying, you know, in 1906, we want to have a closer association. We want to have a closer affiliation with each other. We need to get together because we got to hunker down and be together on this thing. And I think about my brother, uh, the national historian of Alpha Phi Alpha, uh, former professor at Cornell, the great Dr. Robert Harris, my man, Dr. Harris, who wrote the latest iteration of the Alpha History book. Um, 2014, I guess it came out. Uh, you know, Dr. Harris talks about this. They, you know, everybody went to Cornell. Over a thousand alphas went for the centenary back in 2014. The idea is this is a hostile environment. We up here, we're the cream of the race. We're the emerging group of the talented 10th. We're going to help be black leaders, but we got to get through Cornell first. So what starts kind of like as a social studies club, as, as, as a studies club, as a kind of a, a, an affiliation like that. And then they formalize it. Because see, the white fraternities and sororities which is the environment they're operating in, they've already got their houses, their powerful alumni. And the most important thing about sororities and fraternities is the alumni. It isn't the undergraduates. It's after you've generated decades of alumni, you're supposed to have a network. So you're supposed to come in and flash a sign or have your colors on and somebody say, oh, I play so-and-so. And you're supposed to get the internship. Why? That's how the white boys do it. I mean, because the idea is we're trying to build a network from nothing. So they're bringing in this sense of community that they're coming out of black communities with and it's colliding with the field of cultural violence that they find themselves in. And I'm calling it a field of cultural violence because there's nothing black there. These are the Greek letters. So when you wed that field of cultural violence to this idea for a community, you get alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, by alpha. Because you got, you got this, and then you got this, and so we got, we got one too. This is for us, alpha by alpha. So they do that. Shortly thereafter, they found, because they did this at the white school. Shortly thereafter, they found the second chapter of Alpha. Some of those same guys with a Cornell come down to Washington, D.C. Because remember, Murray, daddy, D.C. is where these Negroes are. It ain't really, it's not, it, I mean, there are other places too, New York, Cleveland. But really, you're talking turn of the century, you're talking about D.C. D.C. is the place that attracts a lot of these people who eventually merge as the black bourgeoisie. 
in terms of this access to or, or proximity to power. Remember Fred Douglas, D.C. He comes to D.C. He's a recorder of deeds. His house selector, Cedar Hill. I mean, you know, you, you got these people, you know, uh, the, the Turrells end up there. Robert Church, Mary Church Terrell. I mean, ultimately, D.C. is where people are going. The senators, all those black people, they, all those black brothers, those brothers that get elected during Reconstruction. The two black senators out of Mississippi, rebels, right? I mean, Hiram K. Rebels and Blanche Kelso Bruce. They live over here at DuPont Circle. Uh, Bruce House still there. I mean, so D.C. is where it's coming. Uh, Paul Robeson's wife's uh, grandfather, Cardozo, fleeing South Carolina, Reconstruction politician, ends up in D.C. and become, Francis Cardozo becomes the kind of uh, the, the head of the colored schools in D.C. Uh, Booker T. Washington uh, has a stake in Washington, D.C. Why? His wife's nephew, I think it was, um, who he becomes after Cardozo and them, he gets to be a superintendent. I mean, so D.C. is where the thing is going on. So they come to D.C. over their, their break at Cornell and they form the second chapter of Alpha, Beta Chapter. Beta Chapter, where did they found it? Howard University. And so that's when you see the sort of Alphas. Okay, so even though the first one is at a white school, in very short order, they come into this emerging black elite. And so in rapid order after that, 1908, some black women get together on the campus of Howard University. Because again, Howard will be the capstone of Negro education. And of the HBCUs, Fisk, liberal arts, Atlanta University, liberal arts, Morehouse and Spelman emerging out of that kind of religious instruction piece to be liberal arts. I mean, then you got the battle with the Tuskegee's and the Hamptons who are saying, yes, no, we got to train in values and we got to really deal, grapple around this issue of learning to work and how to instill discipline. And the irony is Walter Dyson in his history of Howard University says for the first 40 years of his existence, really up until the period we're talking about right now, to the first decade of the 20th century, Walter Dyson asserts in his history book of Howard, written in 1940, Howard University, the capstone of Negro education, Howard wasn't really a university, wasn't really a college, even though it had a law school and had a divinity school and had a medical school, all that kind of thing. He said, it really wasn't. The first 40 years, it's really focusing on values. Because remember, General Howard, you know, now these guys are Christians, right? Congregationalist church. And what they're saying is the Negroes in this country need a leadership class that is deep in morals. This is where my friend Valethea Watkins Beatty and I mean, always talk, you know, people are writing about this period, the cult of true womanhood and this Victorian era idea of morals and standards. And these are the Negroes who are going to look at the rest of these black people. We're going to get this in a minute with, with this question of Clyde Coven and say, yeah, you're not really cultured like I am. Now, Du Bois, ironically, we're going to ask black people, uh, you know, what kind of culture are you going to have? What kind of culture are we going to have? Du Bois, bruh, you came out of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. You wear that German goatee and mustache. You went and got another PhD almost at the University of Berlin. You went to Fisk undergrad because they told you you couldn't go to Harvard. You went to Harvard, got a PhD, and you loved the hell out of black people, but you can't stand the blues. So, I mean, there's this, 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 this schizophrenia and tension even among this leadership class, right? So, uh, when they come together on the campus of Howard, these sisters... They say, you know, we got to stress education. We got to stress, you know, we want to have a closer association. And these are black women. So they got to deal with the gender piece as well, because this cult of true womanhood is almost a gilded cage in some ways for black women, particularly if you're going to mock uh, or, or, or imitate these white people, because we all know how patriarchy works. At the center of patriarchy is white patriarchy. At the center of white patriarchy is women. Y'all ain't got no role. You'll be housewives. Learn how the correct thing to do to say to where. Go read Charlotte 
Hawkins Brown and some of this other stuff. I mean, you know, we're going to be like them. Meanwhile, black women have worked every day of their life for a hundred thousand years, including the last 500, which is the only reason that they were brought, y'all were brought here to work. So, I mean, ain't no idea, like, you've been somewhere sipping tea in a parlor, but now these handful of Black people coming into these Black colleges trying to say, oh, can we develop a leadership class for the race in the middle of a raging debate among white people about how should we help get these Negroes trained to go manage the rest of these millions who ain't going nowhere now and they're having babies. Now they're convening around these handful of black colleges and Howard University, the national HBCU, so to speak, is there. And they're saying liberal arts, they're saying this kind of thing. They're emerging out of the values-based curriculum stuff. There are a handful of black faculty being trained and now who are coming to work at Howard. It's very important. Now, these sisters come together and say, we're going to come up with our own group. And in 1908, they formed their own alpha. Alpha. Kappa Alpha. The first black Greek letter sorority collegiate, right? Or otherwise, because there was no male female version of Sigma Pi Phi. Unlike the Prince Al Masons and the Order Eastern Star, there's no relationship there. You know, if you are a member of fraternity to sorority, your spouse or your significant other can be affiliated, but not as a member, right? So they, they do their thing. Almost immediately, there are tensions that began to emerge. Why? Some of the people who have found it said, this is cool. We all together, but we all black here anyway. So what are we going to do? You know, we're expected to be leaders in the black community, right? And here's the interesting thing. People think people go to college supposed to be leaders. Like they think rappers and ball players are supposed to be leaders. It's a warped sense because we ain't got no developed narrative of how leadership should emerge. So we're kind of feeling our way in the dark. But the assumption is you went to college, you're supposed to do something. Why? Because you represent us. And I'm out here. You see this lynchings and all this shit going on. So you see that going on. So what happens is. 1908, almost from the beginning, you've got some tensions uh, among the founders, right? F uh, and Lyle Hedgerman, um, which is interesting. That's a whole nother conversation because one of these days we will get to, to our sister, Anna Arnold Hedgerman. But um, Lucy Diggs Slow, who ends up at Howard, a founder of Alpha Kappa Alpha, uh, first black women professional tennis champion, the dean of first dean of women at Howard, very important, immersed in service. So they're going to, you know, they're going to get it now. So this is taking this conversation since 1908 is bu bubbling among the women who have founded AKA, as they like to say, my, my sorors, AKA, AKA, a serious matter. So yes, that, and you're right, that's, that's Kamala Harris's organization, right? And oh, I should say this parenthetically, a Howard chapter, member of a great letter organization, particularly one that was founded at Howard, it's a, it's a different thing. You know, I'm a member of Alpha Alpha Beta Omicron. Howard's beta chapter was beta chapter, the second chapter. You know, AKAs at Grambling, uh, like my dear friend and sister Dana uh, Williams, dean of the graduate school at Howard, she an AKA. She plays at Grambling, another state HBCU. She not alpha chapter. <laughs> alpha chapter AKs, you know, and those alpha chapter AKs who I know who don't like that idea that somehow they somehow set apart because they're the alpha chapter. They, they get smoke inside the chapter. Oh, man, it's all mess. Anyway, let me keep going very quickly. 1911, three years later, the first black fraternity founded at an HBCU comes into existence. They call it that Coleman Love. That group founded on the principles of manhood, scholarship, and uplift. The sons of blood and thunder, as they were known. That's your daddy fraternity. 
omega psi phi. So you can see within this small black elite, you're beginning to see distinctions as this black elite trying to work out what they're going to say and represent themselves at. So you got alpha phi alpha, right? Scholarship, that's at the beginning. You know, manly deeds, scholarship, love for all mankind. Here come the cues with mm, manhood. Yeah, yeah. Scholarship too, no question, no question. Uh, uplift, absolutely. But let's be clear, y'all alphas, that's the first letter. We're omega, the last letter. Okay, this is what you expect from black people. Everybody got to put their mark on it, right? And so what happens? Finally, the AKA conversation bubbles over into a split. Now, I'm not going to get into it. Those of you who are AKAs or Deltas, that's y'all business. I've heard about it as many different sides of this story as I can imagine as a man who is not a member of those sororities, but has dear friends all over the place, and including our sister, Ajua Batwe Azmoa, who is one of the key people in the very public-facing legislative agenda and public engagement dimension of this sorority, it finally bubbles over. Some of the AKs say, we put y'all out. Some of the Deltas say, we left. But what's clear is in 1913, on the campus of Howard University, some of the original members of AKA move into what is now Delta Sigma Theta. Oh, Delta. Okay, well, what's Delta stand for? Well, I mean, you know, everybody got their thing, right? Service, education. And it's, it's interesting, many people who are in this room right now are probably thinking some of your most influential people you may have known growing up, particularly our generation, if they were black women, school teachers, and they, they, there's, a, there's, a, there's a professional teacher's uh, sorority as well, um, it's Pi Kappa Delta and some other ones, but in terms of black, if they're in a black sorority, a lot of them were AKs or Deltas. And it was a serious thing. They carried themselves a certain way. And I know growing up, we didn't know anything about any of this stuff, right? But then when I got older and I reflected back or I go back home, I realized, oh, you're AK, oh, you're a Delta. Because now I know what that is. And I'm saying, damn, okay. Because education and central race uplift is at the center of those sororities. Fraternities too, but you know black women. Oh my God. And this is during the period of, you know, Mary Church Terrell, the Adabelle Wells, and the National Association of Colored Women, and National Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. And so they're gonna bring all that, all that potent, we gotta get our community together into those collegiate extensions of that sensibility. So the Deltas always service, service, politics. They got a whole lobbying arm. <laughs> if you, I've never been to the AKA meeting, but I've been to the Delta meeting. And you walk into the room with the Delta. Ajua took me. She had me do a workshop. And they said, you going to stay for the luncheon? I'll stay. Andrew Gillum spoke that day. He's the Alpha's wife, Delta. Walked in. Man, it's a thousand people in here. And I'm talking about Marsha Fudge. I'm, I'm, I, these women here, If you, that's why they say black women pull Joe Biden's carcass over the line, in part because they are not playing. <laughs> you understand? And that's not to say the AKs aren't not playing, but I'm just saying, you see it. Anyway, please, I saw you coming with no, no, I just, I wanted to just put a fine point on colorism, brown paper bag test. At some point, we got to, not today, not today, because we got a lot to cover. We got people coming in for questions. I just, I don't want to just pass over that there was a colorism thing that we still are, absolutely, still in some ways you know dealing That's important with. For a couple of reasons. Um, Holly and Shriek's, uh, the Grima's uh, baby daughter, she's not a baby, she's a grown woman. She's the director of the Carr G. Woodson. Uh, Academy for Black Studies at Dunbar High School here in D.C. 
And uh, the last week of class, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in my Education Black America class, the Dunbar students came to class through Zoom. And we talked about that. And they brought up that brown paper bag test. Because in the early days, again, who's going to school? You know, a place like Fisk, a place like Morehouse, Spelman. Some of those children, some of those teenagers going to college are the children of interracial relationships. Maybe the grandchildren of rape during enslavement, maybe clandestine relationships. But yeah, there's colorism for real because again, many of these institutions are shaped by white board of trustees, white investors, white organizations. In the case of Henry Morehouse, named for the American Missionary Association, Laura Spellman, Rockefeller, General Howard. And I mean, even the names, I'm saying, you know, y'all, I never will sit right with the idea that we got to black up a white dude. At some point, can we change the name? I know it's heresy, but hell, that's one reason I like Tuskegee. I mean, among other reasons, I like Tuskegee. Whatever you can say about Tuskegee or can't say about Mother Tuskegee, as they call it in Alabama, the name is a Native American name. I just like this. I just like the symmetry, <laughs> you know, but at any rate, but, but what follows is also a sensibility that proximity to white elitism is the path forward for the race. And that doesn't just mean in terms of culture, in terms of study, it means also in terms of color. So the whole idea that these light skins are brown paper bag tests, oh yeah, we should, we definitely talk about it. There's a whole rack of books on that subject, but, 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 but you're definitely gonna see that there. Now you will see the odd and occasional caramel, chocolate. You're gonna see, you see, because here's the thing, the pool you pulling for them is tiny. So if the pool is tiny, sometimes some of these Negroes just exceptional. I mean, Ernest Just, who is a founder of uh, Omega Sci-Fi, who's one of those early trickle of black people coming into the Howard faculty. Ernest Just out of South Carolina, Dartmouth undergrad, is a stem cell biologist who ends up winning the Spengar medal. This dude is a, is, is a certified genius. Not a genius like we talking about now when people geese and say, hey, you're a genius. No, this Negro fought his way. And now he ain't no light-skinned dude, but, but he's Ernest Just. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Now, you contrast that with a little bit of a kind of butter caramel dude like Elaine Locke, but you can't deny him either. Elaine Locke, who ends up being one of the founders of Phi Beta Sigma a little bit later. He comes out of Philly, but he's been to Oxford. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's on the he's in the trickle now, coming in the 1920s to Howard. And so he becomes, so let's, let's keep going. So Phi Beta Sigma comes next, the following year, 1914 service again in their thing you know but because again service got to be the center of fraternity so it becomes the third fraternity fourth if you include sigma pi phi and phi beta sigma is very interesting because everybody ultimately develops their own sensibilities right and these are the stereotypes that pervade the the, the they change over the years sometimes adjust but the kind of founding ones kind of remain phi beta sigma is almost seen in some ways i think and i know a lot of very good Sigmas from the time I was an undergrad. In fact, that's how I got to come go, go into Alpha, but I'll come to that in a second. Um, my man Carl, who was a, always wanted to be a Sigma because his dad, his his uncle, who was on the art faculty at Tennessee State, was a Sigma. Uh, Keith Pitts, one of my big brothers at, at, at Tennessee State in the theater department. And you, you guys are Sigmas, right? So I thought I wanted to be a Sigma because, you know, the ones I first met when I was in the March Band at Tennessee State the summer before school started, they wanted to be Sigma. Someday. Maybe I want to be a Sigma because I don't know the difference between any of them understand but the sigmas you know bigger i think in the south although all over the country but you know oh the other thing they do is these these fraternities and sororities as they come into existence they go back to get famous black people who went to school 
before there were fraternities and sororities black and recruit them in as honorary members. So Dr. Du Bois, for example, goes to give a talk at the University of Michigan. I was reminded of this uh, the other day by somebody who sent me the article. I'm like, damn, I never saw this newspaper clipping. Thank you. This is a great bit of alchemy to see this. He gives a talk. Afterwards, the alphas entertain him at their spot and they invite him and he joins as an honorary member. The following year, he in New York, he all up in the mix now. Du Bois is like, yeah, we're going to have a graduate uh, chapter here in New York City. So Du Bois is an alpha. The alphas, <laughs> my man Jacob Carruthers, who was an alpha, Jacob Carruthers, you say, when he, he plays down at um, uh, Houston Tillerson, and, and he's from Houston, people from Houston, Marshall, Texas. He's, he said, when I was an undergrad, the the, uh, the Omegas used to clown us. They had made a song up to uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic where they had uh, lyrics that were making fun of the Alphas. And they had a song, they said, uh, the Alphas, they were desperate. They were running short of men. So they dug up Frederick Douglass and they made him live again. This is what the Alphas did. They went back and claimed Frederick Douglass is dead. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, they gonna claim Fred Douglass. Well, what did the Sigmas do? The question of service, uplift, get the race together. They claim George Washington Carver. When I was an undergrad, the stereotype was the Sigmas were the country, the Bama Negroes. George Washington Carver, one of the most important minds produced in America of any type. You know, but the idea is the stereotype is he's kind of farmer. And one of the biggest fights I ever saw in my life was at a Tennessee State football game. We were at Vanderbilt Stadium and the Kappas were sitting above the Sigmas and they started a fight by starting a whole song. You just heard all these Kappas at once, maybe about maybe 40, 50 Kappas. Green Acres is the place to be. And they're singing down to the to the Sigmas. Sigmas look back around. Next thing you know, you just see this cascade of fists and arms and legs. As people. Anyway, so again, the American Negro boy. But that's a different generation than what we're talking about. I'm going to close this up in a second. So, Fabi the Sigmas, 1914. Okay, now you've got a little bit of a lull because what comes after them six years later? their sister organization. To this day, even though there's closeness allegedly between AKA and Alpha, between uh, uh, what they call Coleman Love, between uh, the Qs and the Deltas, the only formally related black fraternity and sorority, this one as well, founded at Howard, Zeta Phi Beta. Same colors, same concepts. The Zetas and the Sigmas are literally brother and sister organization as part of their structure. So, the Zetas are very, um, although everybody's there now, the Zetas take great, very great pride in saying that they were the first of the group to establish a chapter in Africa. And Sigma Gamma Road does a lot of work in Africa. They led in a lot of that work as well. But the Zetas say, we were the first ones to go to Africa. And among famous Zetas, Zorna Hurston. For example. So, so the idea is, you know, this kind of grounded, you know, service-based, obviously academic scholarship, because we're all at Black College. We're all at college. But the sense that we're, we're public facing in that sense. It's very important. So uh, very quickly, uh, two years after that, the other sorority that's not founded at HBCU, that's not founded at Howard, frankly, and that is Sigma Gamma Rho, 1992. They come out of Butler, Butler University in Indianapolis. They're in the Midwest, and they go from the Midwest, radiate outward. Ultimately, they establish a chapter on the West Coast, probably the most famous early SG Rho, is Hattie McDaniel. 
it's very interesting to think about that because they do a lot of work in Africa as well. They were doing a lot of early work in Africa as well. And then you don't see for another 40 years, another in the final of the Divine Nine, as I said at the beginning, was out of Phi Theta Service Organization, 1963, Morgan State University, and that completes the Divine Nine. Now, there are other groups that aren't, that didn't start as black groups, but they got black versions. Oh, go ahead. Do we miss the Kappas? Can't miss the Kappas. You're going to get in trouble if you miss the Kappas. Did you? <laughs> you better say something about the Kappas. I'm getting. Indiana University, Kappa Alpha Psi is the other fraternity. I did mention them making fun of the Sigmas, but yes, Phi Nu Phi, <laughs> right, whose headquarters were in Philadelphia, right down the street. That is exactly right. Oh my God, Kappa Alpha Psi. How can I forget Kappa Alpha Psi? You know what's interesting? Wow. When I was an undergrad, uh, there was a Kappa, good brother, who, you know, stereotype is the Kappas are the ladies, men, this kind of thing. But Kappa Alpha Psi, same thing, and the university founded on principles of service, founded on principles of scholarship, and like the Alphas, close association, and they too are in the Midwest. Same state, in fact, Indiana University Bloomington. And so there's this sense, at least with the Kappas and the Alphas, of we're circling the wagons, coming together. That's exactly right. Wow. Wow. I'm trying to remember. Was it 22? Uh, somebody you might have to look that up. Wow. 1920. 22. I'm trying to remember because I'm looking at their seal and I can't pull their history book now. I'm sure that's one of the ones that's in storage. But um, but coming to get right. No, I had had I definitely had to say that. And it's so funny when you see Cabins and Hughes interact because I think there is a closer kind of sensibility. And I've probably seen more Kappa Q fights than I have anybody else. Nineteen eleven, January fifth, nineteen eleven, nineteen eleven. Yes, probably part of it. What was I thinking? I doubled up. I doubled the number. Nineteen eleven. Yes, and it's interesting because um, now, of course, oh, I should mention this. So all these organizations, with the exception of Iota Phi Theta, are founded pre Jim Crow, pre World War II, by good measure. And they are deeply involved in kind of racial uplift stuff and their internal battles as well. The Boule, for example, Percy Lamont Julian comes to the Boule meeting in like the 50s. And he's like, look, we supposed to be the, because see, anybody who's in Kappa or Q or Alpha, you can be in the Boule too, because the Boule is, see, the, the thing about the Boule is they call you, you don't call them, you can't really apply to the Boule, except somebody invited you to apply, invited you to come in. So, you know, David Dinkins, Alpha Phi Alpha, Boulay. Jesse Lewis Jackson, Omega Psi Phi, Boulay. And so forth and so on. You know, yeah. so you have, I mean, you know, uh, Jeremiah Wright, Omega Psi Phi, it's my brother. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you, you, but, but Boulay, you could be a member of, because what they want to say is we are the highest group of Black achievers in the country. We are the ones who, if you're going to be affiliated with somebody, you want to be affiliated with us. Okay. Huh. But what you still see is this tension. So what I say during and after World War II come this come more black people going to college. Black colleges. Now these them rough and tumble Negroes. See, because you would think, okay, they wasn't really into stepping and all this. Not at the beginning. See, that began, I think in my theory is as the base of recruits widens, as more and more black people are going to these black colleges. You start getting some of these rough edge Negroes. There's still gonna be some paper bag business involved, particularly at a place like Howard. But 
Well, I shouldn't even say that because it would be a Tennessee State and Grambling as well because you they, they tell you about that stuff. Some of that stuff continues to persist, as you say. But there are more people now. And so you see some of that cultural thrust begin to emerge. You know, it's the severe days of pledging, right? Some of this crazy stuff. You see, I mean, you're really seeing that in the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, Dr. Norman, Nate Norman, my, you know, my dissertation uh, committee leader and at one time chair of Admiral State's Department at Temple University. He was now at Morehouse. He tried to retire, but then he went out there and started helping them with the writing program. Now he's working more than he's doing in Philly. But Pop pledged Alpha at Ball State. Them Negroes pledged the whole year. This was the, this was the old, this was the, this was, I call it the light period. Don't call it the dark period. Don't do that. Don't do that to black people. It's the light period. The brutality. I mean, the kind of things they talk about, we pledged the whole year. Your daddy? A Q? Where did he cross? Where did he go? Where did he pledge? So my father pledged grad. He went to Allen, didn't he pledged oh, he grad chapter? Right. Yeah. And and they, they, they pledged, they, they pledged in my house. So I what? I remember a lot of things that I cannot talk about, but it and was all, I will not repeat. Other than Invictus and and Roger Kipling, which my mother and I had to help him memorize. But you're kidding. No, to this I day. Know. Yeah, but yeah, uh, he pledged a grad chapter, and uh, most of his brothers were lawyers and businessmen. And oh yeah, yeah, because that's the network. I think Invictus is one of the threads that weaves through all of them. For some reason, that Kipling, oh my God, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. Say it with me. I, mean, I know no. y'all had to help. Oh my God, that is the, you know, that's one of them things that when we were in the hole, so to speak. And they used to, and, and on my line, it were 10 of us called the Ten Commandments. I was number 10. They, they, uh, we would have to recite Invictus, then it would make it do, they would, then they would make me do it by myself, because I was a theater major in the Shakespearean voice. So I couldn't say, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit. No, I had to say, <clears throat> out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. I mean, he couldn't get enough of that. And so I'll say many a Negro from an ass whipping. <laughs> I mean, why, 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 why if, why Invictus? What, what was, I mean, and I love that, you know, memorizing things like that. Um, why was that also foundational within these uh, fraternities and sororities? a great deal of it again there's that there's that collision course you have the african rites of passage is at the center of human life black people invented rites of passage so when we talk about oh black greek that's a contradiction nah the idea of bringing somebody into community and making them have to prove themselves worthy that's a rites of passage there was a time when you had to be able to hunt or cook or gather the herbs or you had to be able to build something or you were born into the practice of keeping the books like in Timbuktu and you had to earn your way once you were brought in, you had to earn your way into every grade. Read Olaja Equiano. I mean, when you read Equiano, Equiano's like, you know, I had to prove, but I can't just be, a, I can't be a man because I got older. I got to go through the rites of passage. Women, I can't be a woman just because I got older. I got to go through the rites of passage. So there's that element and black people take that serious as hell. And it's different. I remember in undergrad, um, I was working the overnight shift at Crystal's Hamburgers. And, you know, that's one of the ways I put myself through college. Uh, 
working overnight shift, 10 p.m., 6 a.m. I remember I was working across the street from Vanderbilt. Christmas is no longer there in the West End. These white boys came in about 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning, laughing, drunk, laughing, ordered all this food. I'm listening to them talk while we, I'm the shift manager, while we're making the food, whatever, I'm listening to them talk. They had just put their pledges, they were at Vanderbilt, they had just put their pledges on an empty railroad car heading south at the rail and come in now to eat. I don't know what's going to happen to them. They tied them, blindfolded them, got them on the railroad car and left them. <laughs> See, that's some shit. <laughs> we ain't going to do that. Now, they may take you out in the field and blindfold you and say they're going to whip you till you got enough sense to take the blindfold off and start throwing hands. I mean, yeah, that's barbaric. But a railroad car, what kind of devious? Anyway, so, but, but, but that idea of memorization, it's not a fraternity and sorority thing. That comes out of the black church. The Sunday school thing, the Easter speech, I mean, the play, you know what I'm saying? So that sensibility, that's the black part of it. Now, the selections, Invictus, it's a little European, but remember, this is from a generation at the beginning who had cut their eye teeth on, on memorizing Dunbar. Talk about Paul Dunbar. That's why so many Dunbar high schools. I mean, Dunbar, I mean, the, the lyrics of lowly uh, life, or we wear the mask that grins and cries, it shades our cheeks, and I mean, uh, it hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Yeah, I mean, in other words, yeah, you see us smiling, but we call you a <laughs> we mouth with myriad subtleties. You, you don't even understand what we just said to you. So, I mean, that, but that, you had to memorize that. Nay, let them only see us while, while we wear the, wear the mask. This is the kind of thing. So, in the fraternities and sororities, we just brought that in. And then there's this whole thing. Here's it. I don't know that it's ever a good idea, which is why alumni are important. I don't know if it's ever a good idea to loose a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds together to exercise power over somebody a few months younger than them because their brains ain't fully developed. So a lot is foolishness too. You got, I mean, everything is in there. You know what I'm saying? That's why these fraternities sororities sometimes get in trouble. By the time I got to law school, the white people had started invading the rituals and rights of the black sororities and fraternities because of the reports. I mean, you had AKAs that died. You had a Q that was killed. The year I came to Tennessee State as a freshman, 1983, Rose Side Chapter. I mean, these brutalizations. My, my man, Alpha, good brother, love this brother, the president of Dillard University, Walter Kimbrough, has written about it in the Alpha Journal. We got to get rid of this place. This is, this is brutality. And yeah, I came through uh, in 1985, spring 1985, April 1985, during a period when, yo, it was, it was tough. And so, yeah, in fact, so that is a problem. Um, but what we see is your father's generation and in our generation, you at the undergraduate level, these are blacks who are coming in, many of them first generation, they're beginning to come in. And a lot of that stuff that we associate with fraternities and sororities, now the stuff that Spike Lee captures in school days, because the biggest group of people on a HBCU campus or any campus, but in terms of HBCUs, are not members of Greek led organizations. They used to call them GDIs, G damn independence, so to speak. And, and all this kind of thing, right? So um, so I said I'd say this. Um, and I and I'll tell you the story very quick because I, I we definitely want to talk about Rose Parks Claudette Cole for a minute and mention Fred Hampton. I was in the marching band in Tennessee State, as you know. The summer that we started, summer of 1983, we're in band practice. My man Carl Batson, love him to this day wanted to be a Sigma because his uncle was a Sigma and he Sigma's big. So I didn't know the difference. I, mean, I heard the cues because, you know, how can you not hear the cues? Right? So in Nashville, whatever, you know, I had cousins that going to Tennessee State, this kind of thing. Um, hadn't played though. So in Fisk. But, so I didn't really, you know, understand it. So one day during a break, 
in band practice, we all went to the Tennessee State Library, to the Special Collections, uh, second floor of the library, Dan Brown Daniel Library. Why? Because Carl wanted to look at the Sigma history book. He's going to get a jump on it. And they keep the history books in Special Collections because, you know, once you start pledging, they want you to get a history book and you got to get it by hook or by crook and Negroes just take the books out of the library. So they keep the sorority attorney books behind the counter. So the sister gives him the Sigma book. So I'm standing there with a couple other brothers. We looking. He's flipping through. Hmm. Yeah. So now I ask the question that somebody who don't know about none of them will ask. I said, okay. So there's more than one. Yeah, they're the rest of them. Hmm. So what's the difference? Well, different purposes, different, you know, rituals, colors, you know, different. Okay. Depending on what you want to do. Okay. I said, hmm. Well, y'all all crowd around this book. So I see this book. Now, I know enough to know alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And I say, well, let me see that book. They lay pulls it down. Anybody looking at this book but me. They all looking at this same book. Then I see the cover. There's the Sphinx. Now, I've been obsessed with Egypt since I was a kid. Oh, the Sphinx? Whoa. So I start paging through the book. And I see W.E.B. Du Bois. I see Paul Robeson. Hell, there go Charles Harris Wesley, the friends of Car I didn't know who Wesley was at the time. I didn't know who Charles Hamilton Houston was at the time, but I knew Du Bois. I knew uh, I knew Charles. We I mean, I knew uh, uh, Paul Robeson. And then I see Martin Luther King. At which point I turn to them and say, "Is Martin Luther King in that book?" They said, "No, you can only be in one." And I said, "But everybody I know is everybody we know is in this book." And that's the day I said I want to be out. Why? Because if Du Bois, and later on I found out Dick Gregory, you know, Duke Ellington, uh, you name it, Jesse Owens. I'm saying, if every of all them people in this one, why would I want to be in another one? And I ain't no shade to Carter Woodson, who the Qs went back and got. This is the thing that, that the Qs did. I respect them this to this day. Well, make a sci-fi asked Carter G. Woodson, who of course went to school in the 19th century, Dr. Woodson, would you uh join us? Woodson said, yeah but it's going to cost you. I need y'all to help me. Q said, yeah, we'll help you. What you need, bro? I need you to help me work on this thing and spread it. It's called Negro History Week. It was Omega Sci-Fi through their brother, Carl G. Woodson, who recruited them, who helped put the platform under what became, now we call it Black History Month. So, I mean, this is what they were supposed to be. And they were founded to do this work. And those tensions are all there. Those contradictions are still there. But that's why I joined Alpha. And the other thing I would say is that my, my frat brothers to this day laugh about it. Because um, I was student body president at Tennessee State. And when I got to be student body president, it was always a big thing the day before, the Friday before a football game, homecoming, pep rally, all this kind of thing. Everybody wore their Greek letter paraphernalia. But when I got to be student body president, you know, I asked for everybody to come to a meeting, all the student elected leadership. And I said, look, y'all, I know a lot of us are in Greek letter organization. Most of the people on this campus are not. Can we agree for our term not to wear Greek letter or uh, material at the pet rally? Why? Because most of the people here are not. And this class hierarchy, see, my thing, and this has always got me in trouble, especially you can imagine sometimes at a place like Howard, you know, man, I, I do not like pretentious bourgeois sensibility because no, don't, don't do that. And I had a little bit of the credibility to do it because I was an alpha. <laughs> you know what I'm, saying? So I'm not going to wear it. Y'all can do it. But I don't want, you know, 
I just think like we we should be able to uh, we shouldn't be ashamed of anything we do because the Greek letter stuff is all over. You go to HBC campus, there's a place on that campus that's got everybody's stuff painted and benches, and we that's where we had the pep rallies. Everybody know what it is. It ain't no need for us. That's where our Tennessee State stuff. Who you rooting for? Tennessee State. And so to me, that was always the same. My brother, my blood brother, Jeff is an alpha. I mean, you know, and then later on, Tony Browder, Mario Beatty, Anderson Thompson. I mean, uh, Jacob Carruthers. I'm like, oh, y'all alphas. Asa Hilliard was a Q. I mean, so the thing is funny. When you get all these African-centered cats together and they start talking, you see that other piece come out. And a lot of people are saying these Greek organizations just imitating white organizations and we are Africans. We need it. Some of the people that people quote the most were members of Greek letter organizations and they're Greek letter organizations. Somebody asked me, are you Greek? I said, no, I'm an African. I'm an African born from Nash, Tennessee. You know what I mean? No, say it then. Use your words. Are you a member of a Greek letter organization? Yes, I am. But I am not a Greek. <laughs> let's be let's be free. And I mean it different than Giancarlo Exposito minute in school days when he says, I am a Greek. I am from Detroit. He told uh, Larry Fishburne, why to see your monkey back to Mother Africa? The, Spike Lee's trying to capture that tension, but in part because, you know, he didn't come through those spaces. This is GDI sensibility, which is I respect. I should mention one other thing. Morehouse engages in an experiment. This experiment they undertake now, I guess 30 some years ago. They're going to start a fraternity. Some brothers, they said, we're going to start a fraternity that's not Greek letter. It's going to be African. They call the fraternity Kemet, K-M-T. It's going to be Kemetic. It's going to be Egyptian. And so there's a sister association, Aset. And those brothers are incredibly proud of the fact they started an African-centered Greek letter organization. One of the founding members, in fact, Eddie Gloud. Our brother Eddie Gloud, my friend Eddie Gloud. Eddie, Eddie member Kemet. You know what I'm saying? So... I'm saying, hmm. So now you might want to be an alpha too, don't you, man? <laughs> anyway, but anyway, the whole point is, but but I mean, it's it, because this was the moment. This was the moment, and so fraternities and sororities, I think, reflect the the social class tensions. Uh, they continue. They're very different now than they were because after Jim Crow, you begin to see a kind of erosion of that need to be like that. Even Du Bois, who is a member of the Boulet, Du Bois gives a talk at Sigma Pi Phi meeting in New York where he says. I was wrong about the town of the 10th. Hell, it ain't even 10%. We'd be lucky to have 1%. In fact, let's, I'm just going to rename it the guiding hundredth. He said, look at the people in this room. This is where most of the money and influence is in Black America. And what we doing? He asked the same thing Percy LeVon Jr. asked the Boulay. What are we doing? Now, of course, everybody has scholarships. Everybody has outreach. But I think what we're seeing now is an erosion in the sense of, uh, of their sense of importance, certainly post-Jim Crow, post-desegregation. And so Kamala Harris, you know, as an AKA, an alpha chapter, AKA, but you know, in the larger, in larger valences of black America, not only does that not cut any ice, some of those old wounds and old scars of class sensibility and bourgeois pretension, that could work against you if you overplay it. So all those tensions are there. All those tensions are there. And so, yeah, I, I, I'll pause there for a second so that we can talk a little bit about, um, about a sister who is still alive, who didn't pledge a sorority, but who isn't as well known as another sister who uh, is an ancestor who didn't pledge a sorority, but uh, they all of them are known in the context of a young cat who uh, pledged like uh, Marion Barry did, who was one of, who, who, who Barry idolizes cat, 
who did pledge Alpha, uh, who's a Morehouse graduate, by the way, Morehouse run by Benjamin Mays, who was a Cuban. Um, and this young brother, of course, who ended up being a pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church was Martin Luther King. Um, and of course, we're talking about the Montgomery bus boycott, we're talking about Claudette Coleman, we're talking about Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, uh, the anniversary, I guess, uh, the 65th, is it 65 now? 75, oh my God, it's 65. 65th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, we just passed on December the 1st. So we should talk a little bit about that before we go to, and then we can talk about Fred Hampton too, because that's actually there's some ties. We'll tie it all together. Well, I promise you won't take long. <laughs> Go ahead, we gotta get the questions, comments. Well, I should keep going then. Let me just keep going to uh to Rosie. Yes. Okay. Um Rosa Parks. We know Rosa Parks, December the first, nineteen fifty-five, refuses to give her first seat on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and the rest is so-called history. But it's a lot of history that we should explore. In fact, let me just talk a little bit about that. Um, the thing, One of the things I love about Ms. Parks, born in Tuskegee, Alabama, um, one of the things I love about Ms. Parks is she told her own story. You know, Ms. Parks was born, um, right, she, she and Harriet Tubman were alive around the same time. She was born in 1913, February the 4th, 1913, in Tuskegee. She, I think Harriet Tubman made transition a couple of months later in Auburn, New York. I just like, I like the symmetry of that. I like the ancestral connection. It's almost like that baton, so to speak. My man, Jeremiah Wright, talks about, look who's in the stands. He says, you running your relay race in the struggle for black people in the stands cheering you on is all your ancestors. So before Harriet Tubman took her seat in the stands, she passed that baton off to the young girl in, in Tuskegee. Uh, her father, James McCauley, didn't wasn't around, didn't stick around. Her uh, her brother, Sylvester, was there. And then eventually they sent her to live for a time with her grandparents. She moves around a little bit. She's in Alabama. She moves in with her aunt in, uh, in Montgomery. They want to send, send her to a kind of school for colored girls. They're going to, she's going to be refined. She's going to have this training, right? Then she moves and stays with her grandfather for a while. It's very important. Oh, by the way, she also went to high school at the HBCU in, Montgom uh, in Montgomery, Alabama State, Alabama State College for Negroes. You know, it's Alabama A&M in Huntsville and Alabama State in Montgomery. And this, you know, Talladega and still in, in the private HBCUs. But, you know, it's important because some of these HBCUs had what they call laboratory schools, laboratory high schools. Alabama State had one. There's a good book on that, Alabama State schools anyway. Um, Southern University had one. Grambling had one. High schools, right? It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing, I, you know. And, and many of them still do, but uh, those schools still do. But so she's she's being trained to come into this college age, this work, this kind of thing, right? Uh, but as oh, I, I, I should mention this because Miss Parks wrote a book called My Story near the end of her life. Uh, she wrote another book of letters with children back and forth with her and children. She did a couple of personal testimonies. And uh, Douglas Brinkley did a book on Rosa Parks as well. And I'm, the, the, the last, I'm going to save the last two in a minute, minute to mention to them. I got them over here so I can show them to you. But because they're very good. Different reasons, but also they work, they complement each other. Miss um, Parks says one of her earliest memories, her grandfather kept a loaded gun in the front room of their house. He was sitting in a rocking chair in the front room and sleeping there because he said the Klan, because the Klan was riding high. Can imagine 19 teens and 20s. Miss Parks say, as a little girl, I would go to sleep by his side. 
Douglas Brinkley quotes it as, because I wanted to see him shoot that gun. I wanted to see what would happen. Because Miss Parr's granddaddy said, if uh, the Klan come here tonight, I'm going to take as many of them as I can. I don't know how many I can take, but I'm going to take as many of them as I can. They ain't kicking in no door at my house. And they used to sleep in their clothes. Miss Parks talks about that. He is sleeping in their clothes in case they had to get the hell out of there. But he said, if they're kicking in, we ain't got nowhere to go. I'm just going to have to unload this thing. And she said, I want to see him shoot that gun. But I swear to you, and I could not put my hands on the book. In one of those personal testaments she wrote, she wrote this quote. Because I remember just stopping and just laughing. She said, I wanted to see him kill a Ku Kluxer. I said, Rosa Parks. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rosa McCauley. That's very important to understand. Rosa McCauley, because she marries, Ray, she meets and marries Raymond Parks, who's a barber there in Alabama. She meets and marries him in like 1931. She meets him in 1932. They get married. Uh, the anniversary's coming up, December 18th. They, uh, they come together. He is involved in raising money to defend the Scottsboro Boys. This is 1931, 1932. Because the Scottsboro boys and boys in Alabama, Clarence Norris and them that were accused of raping these black girls on this railroad car. And of course, they're going to get them the death penalty or get them from now on in jail. And this thing, this struggle goes on. White girls. White girls. Of Not course. White girls. Of course. Okay. White. Well, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me pause there. You're absolutely right. And that's important for Ms. Parks as well. Because in the South, hell, in America to this day, in some ways, we say girl, you mean white girl. You don't mean black girl. Breonna Taylor cannot be brutalized. You know, you know, it's sad. Sandra Bland can't be brutalized. You know, Renisha McBride can't be brutalized. It's a white girl. Oh, shit. In fact, to this, oh, my God, I'm glad you said that, uh, Karen. Even the phrase, white girl, Du Bois, let me put a footnote on this. I promise you, this is a short story. Remember in Du Bois, in Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois talks about his Valentine card being rejected by a white girl when he was in uh, when he was in elementary school. And I remember one time I was reading Souls of Black Folk with some students at Howard. It's 15, uh, closer to when I was first came to Howard. We sitting around the table. It was an independent study. They wanted to read Du Bois. I said, come on, y'all. It's like four or five of them. We can listen here and read Du Bois. So we're reading Du Bois, and we read that passage, and I paused. I said, do you know that white, anybody around this table know that white girl? And my man, Jason Raven, who's a professor now at Texas Southern, Jason looked at everybody and said, I know that white girl. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> that means that's the little girl that you went to school with. You call yourself liking and she like you or don't like you. And in some ways it enters the sensibility of preference. And what and I said, say some more. I must find out if you know that white girl. He said, that's the girl who like black dudes. She's a little, she always around. She won't hug on you, kiss on you. And then you go home and your mom and them are like, no, you didn't. Mm -mm. It's crazy. So when I hear white girls, I think about Du Bois. Now, this is a stereotype, of course. It's an archetype. I don't want to say stereotype. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a character in this larger narrative of white violence called white nationalism, also known as the United States of America. But the white girl can get you killed. And in, the, and, in, and, in, and in this case, you got white girls, black boys, white women, black men riding the rails in the 30s, victims of the Great Depression, trying to get from place to place, look up a job or something to eat, hoboing, as they used to call it, John Henry Clark, who came out of that same region of Alabama, Union Springs, Alabama. You know, the the, 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 the railroad detectives and them pull them all off the car, and of course the white girl's gonna say, oh, help me, we was just together cracking jokes. And now all of a sudden, okay, and they gonna put these boys to death. Raymond Parks and Rosa Parks helped raise money to defend the Scottsboro boys. 
And in one vignette, I remember Miss Parks, somewhere she wrote, um, they would have meetings. And before they started the meeting, people would pull out their firearms and put them on the table or whatever, just in case they had to shoot their way out of there because the Klan and them and all these other places, they didn't want these black people organized. See, Miss Parks is not just a lady who was a seamstress at the department store. She didn't take her seat. Anyway, let me go hurry up because I want to get to Claudette Coleman. If you want to read more about Rosa Parks, really, and this is where it gets fascinating, uh, a couple of good books. This is a book by uh, Jeannie Theo Harris, whose sister actually is, is uh, co-leading the uh, Poor People's Campaign with uh, our brother William Barber, also an alpha. But at any rate, like with Roland Martin and the rest of these cats, alphas. Anyway, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, Jeannie Theo Harris. This is the latest edition. She puts in one place, going through the archives and stuff like this, this story of Rosa Parks. Because see, Rosa and Raymond Parks, after what happens in 1955, they've got to leave Alabama. And the migration patterns often in Alabama end up in Detroit. I got family in Detroit. My mom's from Alabama. So, you know, they end up in Detroit and she spends the rest of her life there in a fascinating convergence. In fact, I, let me let me introduce, oh, one other book on Rosa Parks. I love this book. Library of Congress, Carla Hayden. I went to see this exhibit. I love this. Carla Hayden. Shout out to Carla Hayden coming out of the children's libraries in, in, in Chicago and then running the Enid Pratt Library in uh, Baltimore, and then eventually becoming the, the first black and first black woman librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden. This is the Library of Congress's companion book to the exhibit that they just had uh, last year, Rosa Parks, in her own words, Susan Rayburn, but look at that, with a foreword by Carla Hayden, Carla D. Hayden, librarian of Congress. I just, I just love it. I love it. Anyway, this is a great book because you see the documents. You see, Miss Parks wrote on everything. I mean, you know, you can flip through here. Um, here's actually part of the page where she's describing how her grandfather kept a gun, kept a gun on the thing. And I wanted them to put the other page on there because I wanted to confirm what I read somewhere else. I wanted to see him kill a Ku Kluxer. He kept the shotgun within reach, hand reach at all times. My aunt widow and her five small children came to the house at night. We could not undress and go to bed at night. The doors and windows were boarded and nailed tight from the inside. I stayed awake many. See, look, see, I stayed awake. Yeah, come on, son. I stayed awake many. And then that's the end of the page they had on the exhibit. I said, put the next page on. I want to see the next page. Many nights. I wanted to see him kill a Ku Klux. Anyway, but it's, it's beautiful. It's got all kind of records in there. It's very important to Rosa Parks. So let me introduce the other sister by way uh because Rosa Parks, of course, who was the secretary of the NAACP Youth Division in, um, in Montgomery, working with E.D. Nixon, Edgar Daniel Nixon, who's considered a fine, upstanding citizen in Montgomery, 1955, when she's arrested. Uh, of course, she's 42 years old at the time. They call her the mother of the movement because she was working with the young people in the NAACP in Montgomery. In fact, one of those young sisters, teenager, 16 years old, one of those, oh, 15 actually, Mrs. Parks, who's responsible for helping organize the youth division, tells her, asks her, she says, yes, will you accept being my secretary who takes notes? The young girl said, yeah, I'll do it, Miss Parks. That young girl who was going at the time to Booker T. Washington High School in Montgomery, that's Claudette Coleman. This is a great little book, Philip Hoos who interviewed Claudette Coleman, who's still alive, New Yorker, up there where you are, Karen. Um, this book here, 
This book is only 130 pages, but it's almost written with middle school language. The, the, the beautiful thing about this book, it's not really a children's book. I always say this about children's books. Children's books are called children's books, but she had never told her story on the record when he approached her. He approached her for years, finally in New York. And finally, he got a call back. This is published in 2009. He finally got a call back. And uh, the person who was the intermediary said, Ms. Coleman said, you know, if you still want to talk, she's ready to talk. And so this is based on interviews with Claudette Coleman, extensive interviews with Claudette Coleman. And then Ms. Coleman, once she got comfortable with him, she said, now here goes my family. You talk. So he goes to Alabama. He travels all right. He interviews the families. He goes through, he talks to the people who helped her, the people who were making decisions. And so what emerges in this book is the story. So let me just go through the story very quickly. Claudette Coleman. And I, and I, I encourage people to get this book. I ask Sam Coleman to get this book. Claudette Coleman, Twice Toward Justice. Why do you call it twice? Because, let me just go through it right quick. Claudette Coleman, look at her. Here she, here she go at age 12 with them cat glasses on. You gotta love black people, man. Always stylish. Them old pictures. I'm like, black people weren't playing, right? But her hair didn't stay like this. Why? Because Claudette Coleman talks about the fact. Uh, in fact, let me just start with this. And I'll, I'll wind it up very quickly. I just want to start with this. Part one, first cry. She says this. Claudette Coleman says, I was about four years old the first time I ever saw what happened when you acted up to whites. She says, I was standing in line at the general store when this little white boy cut in front of me. Then some older white kids came in through the door and started laughing. I turned around to see what they were laughing at. They were pointing at me. The little white boy said, let me see, let me see, let me see too. For some reason, they all wanted to see my hands. I held my hands up, palms out. He put his hands up against my hands, touched them. The older kids doubled up laughing. My mother saw us, and she saw that the boy's mother was watching. Then my mom came straight across the room, raised her hand, gave me a backhand slap across the face. I burst into tears. She said, don't you know you're not supposed to touch them? The white boy's mother nodded at my mom and said, that's right, Mary. That's how I learned I should never touch another white person again. That's Claudette Colvin. In, in an original interview to this dude, Philip Hoos, for the book Claudette Colvin, Twice Toward Justice. I encourage y'all to get this book because what you're going to then see is as this child comes of age, she's in the segregated schools. She goes to Booker T. Washington School. There are two black high schools in Montgomery, Booker T. Washington and their rival, George Washington Carver. And so at, at Booker T. Washington, she starts studying black history because guess what? February, again, shout out Omega Sci-Fi. Shout out Carter G. Woodson. They have black history, except they don't just do it a week in February. They review what they've studied the whole year during the whole month of February. And what happens? <laughs> she has a school teacher that she loves. The school teacher that she loves, shout out to sororities and fraternities, because I don't know whether this sister was a was a was a member of the sororities and fraternities, but I suspect she probably AKA or Delta or Sigma Gamma Rho or something. She ends up teaching, team teaching black history the whole month of February. And so Claudette Coleman is fired up, fired up with this notion of black history. She changes her hair. She started wearing cornrows. People, oh my God, cornrows? Yeah, see, Negroes now, natural hair is cool, but yeah, five minutes ago, when we was coming along, <laughs> what are you doing, right? Now, also, one of her classmates, Jeremiah Reeves, y'all look that name up. He was 16 years old at the time. Jeremiah Reeves is arrested and charged with raping a white housewife. They put that boy to death. 
just her classmate. This is what Claudette Coleman says. Her she says, Jeremiah Reeves' arrest was the turning point of my life. That was when I and a lot of other students really started thinking about prejudice and racism. She said, I was furious when I found out what had happened. Jeremiah, right, Jeremiah lived right below us on the hill. I knew him well, admired him like everybody did. We girls thought he was like a rock star because he was so stylish. He always wore a starch clean shirt. Thinks about Jackie Robinson. That's what his wife said about him. And there was never a spot of mud on his shoes. He was a wonderful drummer in the school band and in bands around town. Then he says that um, the jury sentenced him to death. He was put to death. She was fired up. Miss Nesbitt, Geraldine Nesbitt, was the teacher that she's talking about. She had gone to Alabama State and had a master's degree from Columbia in New York. Goes all the way back thinking about Dorothy Porter Wesley we talked about back in the summer. But here's the thing. They had studied Black history, all of February, all of February, 1955. What happens March the 2nd, 1955? <laughs> Claudette Coleman gets on the Highland Gardens bus at the corner of Dexter Avenue and Bainbridge. She gave the fare. She got in. She's sitting in the back of the blacks. The bus driver tell her to get up. <laughs> I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up. All right. Watch this. Hold on. Let me see if I could find the quote because I want to read what she said. Here we go. They came to me, stood up over me and said, aren't you going to get up? I said, no, sir. He shouted, get up again. I started crying, but I felt even more defiant. I kept saying over and over again in my high-pitched voice, it's my constitutional right to sit here as much as that lady. I paid my fair 16-year-old black girl. You ready to go natural? Coming out of black history for a whole solid month with these master teachers at her Booker T. Washington High School. She says my constitutional right. I knew I was talking to a white policeman, but I had had enough. So this ain't the narrative. Like, they put the narrative, Miss Park said, why you push us around? Says a minute of defiance, and then they arrest her. Not these teenagers. You know teenagers. And this black girl, too? Look, one cop grabbed one of my hands, his partner grabbed the other, and they pulled me straight up out of my seat. My books went flying everywhere. I went limp as a baby. I was too smart to fight back. They started dragging me backward off the bus. One of them kicked me. I might have scratched one of them because I had long nails, but I sure didn't fight back. I kept screaming over again, over again. It's my constitutional right. I wasn't shouting anything profane. I never swore, not then, not ever. I was shouting out my rights. But here's where I want, here's the part. It just killed me to lead a bus. I hated to give that white woman my seat when so many black people were standing. I was crying hard. The cops put me in the back of a police car and shut the door. She goes on. They took turns trying to guess my bra size. They called me nigger bitch and cracked jokes about my parts of my body. I recited the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, over and over. She's going through all this, all this, all this. So now they're going to decide, are they going to use this case to challenge the segregation laws? Her lawyer, she goes and gets a lawyer. And I'm going to show you this book. I don't know how easy this book is to get. But... She was 15 at the time this happened, not 16. This is her lawyer, Fred Gray. This is his book, Bus Ride to Justice. Fred Gray is still alive. He was the lawyer for Rosa Parks. Lawyer for Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Montgomery Bus Boycott, Tuskegee Syphilis Study, Desegregation of Alabama Schools, and the 1965 Civil March. This is the legend, Fred Gray, still walking the earth, still on this side, hasn't joined the Westerners yet. He writes about it in The Arrest of Claudette Coleman, March 2nd, 1955. He talks about her, talks about her family. She was a member of the youth council, quite willing to follow any advice that, because E.D. Nixon, the Pullman Porter, going back to, you know, Anna Hedgeman and uh, A. Philip Randolph, 
really Philip Randolph. They recruit, they say, we're gonna be, we may use you as a test case. They find out she pregnant. Mm, this may not be a good case. And Gray says in the book, I go to represent her. We go down there, but they pick her in a juvenile court and they convict her. So they, but they they suspended, they gotta give her lifelong probation or something like that, you know. So, but they ain't really, so damn, we missed our case. But the reason this is called twice toward justice, because we know what happens in December. Miss Parks gets arrested. Once Miss Parks gets arrested, then they decide they can do it. Now, Claudette Coleman says this later. This is what she says in this book. She says, uh, I hope maybe some of the boycott leaders will understand my situation and help me after what I had done. Deep inside, I hope maybe they would give me a baby shower because she she going to have a baby. She, she going to end up marrying this dude. In other words, yes, I was praying, but, but, but y'all, look, in fact, let me just let her tell it. She said, I needed money and support so badly, but I didn't hear from any of them after I left the courthouse. Not Fred Gray, not Rosa Parks, not Joanne Robinson. Joanne Robinson was a professor of English at, my, at Alabama State. It's very important in this movement. Now, no one called after I testified. I knew they couldn't put me up on stage like the queen of the boycott. But after what I had done, why did they have to turn their backs on me? I knew the answer, she says. I was shunned because I had gotten pregnant. It was made worse because my parents wouldn't let me just explain. This is what happened and hear who the father is. Here's who the father is. Karen, watch this. Based on what you just said a minute ago. Anyone could have understood, but I had promised my parents, so I kept it to myself. But because Raymond was light-skinned and I wouldn't name the father, they all assumed the father was white. Socially, I had three strikes against me. I was an unmarried teenager with a light-skinned baby. Without school, I had no circle of friends my age, and there was no way any of the women in town would accept me. To them, I was a fallen woman. Now, what is she testifying? What court case she talking about? Is her arrest? No, it is not her arrest. She was arrested in March. Ms. Parks arrested in December. But what happens? And this is how Claudette Colvin enters history in terms of the way we should think about her. They decide to file a case called Aurelia Browder versus William um, Browder versus, I always, I, always mess, I always mess it up. When I teach this class, teaching in class, I should teach it more. Versus Gail. Gail was the mayor of, of uh, Montgomery. Browder versus Gail. Aurelia Browder was, was, a, was an adult. These were four black women who had been treated, mistreated by the Montgomery bus company and the police for the same reasons that Claudette Coleman and Rosa Parks were treated. There were four plaintiffs. Miss Miss uh, Miss Browder was the lead plaintiff. Claudette Coleman was the fourth plaintiff. Her great uncle, QT, went down and signed for her to be the fourth plaintiff, and she testified before court. That is the case, Browder versus Gale, that the district court said the Montgomery Bus Company has violated the 14th Amendment, and then they appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided the following year, 1956, in Browder versus Gale, that the Montgomery Bus Company had violated the 14th Amendment. Browder versus Gale is the case that overturned those laws that they were having the Montgomery bus boycott about. And that is how she enters history twice toward justice. It's very important to understand Claudette Coleman was a plant, but she said after that, they ain't check on me, they ain't ask on me. She eventually moves to New York. There she is talking as an adult to some young people at Booker T. Washington High School, going back home, talking to her people. It's so important to understand, you know, I mean, it just, 
it really moves me to think about the fact that we had these triumphs, you know? And Miss Parks, man, there's so much more we can say about Rosa Parks. When Rosa Parks goes to Detroit, she ends up working for John Conyers. She retires, actually, from working in John Conyers' office. Rosa Parks, oh, my God. The story of Rosa Parks, I really wish we could talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that another time because Miss Parks is a force. Miss Parks interviews Reese Taylor. You know, Jenny writes about that in The Rebellious Life of, of Rosa Parks. Reese Taylor is the woman who was raped in Alabama. Of course, but Miss Parks has worked for the NBCP. She's an NBCP investigator. She goes to Highland Folklander School, Folkland School, uh, Highlander Folk School, uh, Miles Horton and them, in Tennessee. That's where she meets Septima Clark out of South Carolina. They, I mean, she's she's doing this organizational work. When she moves to Detroit, she ends up working with John Conyers. She is part of this movement, the reparations movement. She knows Queen Mother Moore in them for reparations. In fact, she's good friends with Richard and Milton Henry, Amari and Gaidi Obadeli, who start the Republic of New Africa. Mrs. Parks, in fact, is the one that Chokwe Lumumba, my dear friend, now ancestor, called when uh, uh, the Republic of New Africa, some of them had moved to Jackson, Mississippi, and they in a shootout with the police. They arrest Amari Obadeli. He's in jail. They think they're going to kill him. Miss Parks is the one who intervenes. In fact, uh, Miss Parks is the one who probably saved his life. He went to his grave saying that Rosa Parks saved my life. Why? Because, um, let me see if I can find the quote. Well, I won't even look because I know we're running short on time. But Miss Parks is the one who puts the pressure on the people in Mississippi and draws national attention and builds the coalition to help move them forward to make sure that nothing happens to them. Of course, Chokwe Lumumba eventually would relocate himself to Jackson, Mississippi. He's out of Detroit. He's the one appealed to Miss Parks. John Kai said it was Rosa Parks that did that work. The congressman's office was doing, but it was Rosa Parks that kept this up that did this work. She working for me, but she's the one leading this. She's in connection with those Pan-Africanists and Black Nationals. She's deeply connected with them. Chokwe eventually relocates, eventually becomes the mayor of Jackson. His son is the mayor now, Chokwe Antar. But that's a Rosa Parks story in part. I mean, you know, and there's a whole lot more we can talk about Miss Parks, but I want to I wanna stop there and just mention one other thing before we go to question and answer. No, it's about time. The assassination of Fred Hampton is very important. 1969, um, Fred Hampton, age 21, Mark Clark, age 22, are assassinated in a damn contract killing between the FBI and the Chicago Division and the, F and, and the Chicago Police, 2237 West Monroe Street. They're killed there. He shot while he's sleeping in his bed. Uh, his partner, uh, Kua and Jerry, Who's still alive? Uh, she's eight and a half months pregnant with their son, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. Still alive, still struggling, swinging with both fists out there. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Haas has an excellent book called *The Assassination of Fred Hampton*. It came out last year, and again, I don't know what I did with my copy. It's around here somewhere. I couldn't put my hands on it in 24 hours. But um, the killing of Fred Hampton is very important for a number of reasons. Um, Fred Hampton who grew up in middle-class, working-class uh, community. Fred Hampton, like Claudette Coleman, was a member of the NAACP Youth Division. In fact, he's president of the NAACP Youth Division. Um, Fred Hampton began to, let me see if I got, I pulled a couple of those books too because I was able to put my hands on them, but if I don't see them right now. In fact, I would recommend for folks if you really want to get a nice little single gloss piece, and we talked about this book before, Black Against Empire, The History and Politics of the Black Panther Party, a wonderful international version of the history of the Black Panther Party. There's a chapter in here 
chapter nine, is it? Let me see. Chapter 10, Hampton and Clark. Hampton and Clark. That tells you the history of how this thing fit. It's very important to understand because Fred Hampton, charismatic, well-spoken, no drugs, didn't drink, this kind of thing. Fred Hampton was the one, in fact, Jacoby Williams, for those of you who want a more academic gloss on this, Fred Hampton was one of the members who helped found the Illinois State Division branch of the Black Panther Party. It was a state-level branch. Mark Clark was in town in Chicago. He got murdered there. He was in the house that night. He was the head of the Peoria branch, Peoria, Illinois. You know, Peoria, Illinois was also the birthplace of Richard Pryor, who's only about seven years older than Mark Clark. But at any rate, um, they were all there for the meeting that they were having, the Illinois State Division. Jacoby Williams wrote a very good book called From the, From the Bullet to the Ballot, which talks about how they're trying to build coalition politics. So uh, just like in Detroit, where you have black kind of bourgeois, uh, like Judge Crockett, who uh, is worried, who is trying to defend those who were attacked from the Republican New Africa. They were, there was a shootout between the Republican New Africa and the police. Uh, the Republican New Africa was meeting at New Bethel Church, uh, Reverend, um, uh, Franklin, C.L. Franklin, Rich Franklin's father is the pastor. He let the Republican New Africa meet there. Ms. Parks on the staff of Conyers is generating support for the RNA because they're going to try to railroad the RNA for shooting and all this kind of thing. So Judge Crockett, the Republican New Africa is involved. All these politicians, Rosa Parks is building coalition up there, among others, to try to defend them and promote them. Um, remember that movie Detroit, John Boyega? I'm like, man, what they don't show you is that in that what happened in Detroit when the police raided that after hours joint and shot up the place, shot up these, killed these black singers, performers, kind of thing. Again, white girls involved in the mix. After it was over, the, the Detroit community put the police on trial. Who was on the jury, the people's jury, among others, Rosa Parks. Convict those cops, even if just the people of Detroit convict these cops. So this kind of multiracial coalition, well, this this black coalition in Detroit was a multiracial coalition in Chicago. Why? Fred Hampton says we should be able to build some coalition with these white boys. So why don't we see? Can we talk to them? He reaches out on all sides. He reaches out to the young patriots. The young patriots are. White, they call they call their part of town Chicago Hillbilly Harlem. <laughs> He's just like white boy. You thinking and this is some MAGA type cats? Except they also been kind of reading revolutionary stuff, and they saying we're all poor, we all being exploited. Hampton starts meeting with them. This is the problem. This new emerging black power uh, people, the Black Panther Party, meeting with the poor whites. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, on the other side. He meets, and that's why I'm mad now because I don't know what I put, did with the book. I brought it out, my man Lance Williams. Hold on, this is this is gonna bother me because I wait a minute. Ah, here we go. He meet with the gangs. Fred Hampton meets. This is a book by Natalie Moore, good sister Natalie Moore, Howard Grad, and Lance Williams. My man Lance Williams works at the Center for Inner City Studies, the Jacob Carruthers Center for Inner City Studies, by the way. Uh, the Almighty. Black Peacestone Nation. This is the history, the rise, fall, and resurgence of an American gang. Now, everybody knows the, the Blackstone Rangers, the, the Vice Lords, the Gangster Disciples, you know, in, in Chicago. Hampton reaches out to Jeff Fort, who is, who is with Hampton? Bobby Rush. 
Congressman Bobby Rush now, who's also a Panther in the Illinois chapter in Chicago, they say, hey, we should have some kind of coalition. Can we figure out a way to build political power together? And the gangs is like, yeah, you want to join the gang? I don't know. You want to have a conversation? Because Jeff, Jeff Ford is brilliant. Meanwhile, what does counterintelligence program do? Counterintelligence program, the United States government, get my Kenneth O'Reilly's book, Racial Matters, is a good like one volume kind of gloss on it. But you can get the COINTELPRO papers and many other books. What you see is they're like, oh, this is a problem. This guy Hampton is a problem. Black Panthers are a problem generally, but Hampton is a real problem. Hampton is building an interracial coalition. Any talking to the gangs, this could be a real problem. In fact, you know what they named their interracial coalition? The Rainbow Coalition. Jesse Jackson, by this time, is also in Chicago. This is where the name Rainbow Coalition comes from. It's for Hampton and them, the white, uh, the, the young patriots. You know, you got the Latinos in there. You got, or Hispanics, they may be called at that point. I mean, these labels don't fit anybody, right? You got the gangs they want to talk to. So what happens is the FBI sends a letter to Jeff Fort, the head of the Peace Stone Rangers, talking about a Peace Stone Nation, that, uh, you know, uh, this is just from concerned brother. I understand that it's going to be uh, some violence, and I think that they're going to try to have you have a hit taken out on you. And according to uh, Moore and Williams, they say Jeff Fort just starts laughing. He said, I know it's the police because black people ain't going to send you no message talking about, I think they're going to put a hit on you. No, they just go do it. So he said, I know it's the police, but here's the problem. The cops decide this guy got to go. So they recruit an informant named William O'Neill. And this is the informant, as you were talking, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, the FBI informant. He's in Cook County Jail when he's approached by another dude and says, you know, look, we're going to kind of keep you out of jail, but you're going to have to inform on us. So O'Neill joins the Black Panther Party, becomes the chief of security, and it is William O'Neill who draws the floor plan for the police who in a pre-dawn raid between this incipient murder contract, basically, between the Chicago FBI and the Chicago police, uh, Edward O'Halloran uh, is the Cook County attorney, authorizes the raid. And normally when they do a raid under the extensive, they look, they're looking for weapons. That was the warrant they had. They're looking for illegal weapons. But they didn't come with tear gas. They didn't come with, no, they came loaded with all of these extra, this extra, uh, extra guns and all this kind of ridiculous caliber weapons. They came in there to execute a murder contract. And somewhere just before five o'clock in the morning, they busted in there and they murdered Fred Hampton and uh, Mark Clark. In fact, according to the testimony, uh, Sister um, Njeri, in, in, in Sister Kua Njeri, his, his, his wife, uh, in terms of purposes, he says, um, she says, you know, I heard them talking and I heard one of them say in the other room, in the room, the bedroom where we were after I'm out of the bedroom, ain't talking about him. Well, he, he, I think he's still alive. And he, he says she heard two more gunshots. Fred Hampton is dead. It's execution damn devils and uh it isn't the execution although it should be the execution and i say that because we saw what happened in louisville uh day before yesterday the or yesterday the uh no, yeah yeah the not effing around coalition right n-e-a-c the people who have been in the street with others saying you know we gotta you know we want justice for brianna taylor y'all gonna stop doing this damn police brutality the uh, the Louisville Police Department, along with the damn Secret Service, 
Now, this is in Louisville, Kentucky, where they've been organizing, right? Tamika Mallory, Linda Sarsour, everybody, Nick Cannon's been down there. You know, uh, Sean Mickens, my man, Sean Ali Mickens, Young Cat, Sophomore Howard. They've been in the streets, right? I mean, Daniel Cameron, of course, on the wrong side of history and his whole bloodline on the other side. Well, they arrested this brother yesterday, John Fitzgerald Johnson, the man they call Grandmaster Jay. Can't get no more American than John Fitzgerald. Well, unless you're talking about Irish immigrants who acquired whiteness in Boston under Honey Fitz and then you wrap themselves in the American flag. The, the man named John Fitzgerald, but they call him Grandmaster Jay. He was arrested yesterday and charged with assault, uh, attempted assault on police officers saying that they pointed a gun at him. He wasn't arrested in Kentucky. He's across state lines at his apartment in Ohio. You know what? They done made this federal, just like when they collaborated to kill Mark Clark and kill Fred Hampton. The damn police still doing it. And this brother's crime? They had weapons. The Knife and Around Coalition believes in self-defense, like the Black Panther Party for self-defense. That's the trigger, one of the triggers, but the trigger in the case of the execution of Mark Clark and Fred Hampton, the trigger is they doing interracial politics. They are potentially putting together an incredible coalition. They bringing in the gangs. This could be a problem because we need these gangs. We need Black-on-Black -black violence as this trope that we have. In fact, at the funeral, Bobby Rush talks about this, among others, and they write about it in the almighty peace stone, Black Peace Stone Nation. Ralph Abernathy, I want to say, was giving the eulogy at the funeral. And yeah, yeah, he was giving a speech. This is what they say. This is what Bobby Rush said. I recall right in the middle of civil rights leader Ralph Abernathy's speech, I heard a shuffle. I looked toward the rear of the church and Jeff came in, Jeff Fort, the leader of the Black Peace Stone Nation. 2,000 stones walked in right wearing red berets and dark sunglasses. They spoke not a word, but marched around the church, then marched back out. Now, this is what the black, this is what the FBI was trying to stop. So I, I, I'll stop with this last comment. Pause with this last comment. We know why Bobby Rush, former Panther, beat the tar out of a young, ambitious politician named Barack Obama first time he ran for Congress. Black people don't know Barack Obama. We know now when President Obama and Jim Clyburn and others are saying, you know, defund the police is a slogan. Don't, you know, overuse that. We want some of the same things. But, you know, when you say something like that, you're alienating people. Completely undermining the fact that that phrase is attended by a a heavy concentration of young organizers, young people like Rosa Parks and Courage and Ella Baker, young people like the Claudette Colvins of the world, young people like the Fred Hamptons and Mark Clarks of the world. And But, you know, if you're going to pick sides, then first of all, you shouldn't pick sides. We should all figure out a way to do this thing together. But if you're going to talk craziness like that, never forget, President Obama, that the reason Black people supported you was with the idea that you were going to enact policy that would help enact policy that was going to advance all of us. You you swung and missed on a lot of it. Obamacare, that's good. I mean, you did some good things. But at the same time, bruh, stop talking, man, because we got real open enemies out here in these streets. And as uh, Ayanna Presley, Congresswoman Presley, as Congresswoman Cory Bush and them have said, Ocasio-Cortez have said, yeah. You shouldn't be chastising the people trying to stop the violence. You should be chastising the people trying to cause the violence. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's a different, but we see some of these same tensions from them. We see now. Whew. Thank you. Yes, uh, Dr. Carr, once again, um, undefeated, 
You no. want to start getting some questions in, and let me yes. just thank everyone who participated today. Who uh, we have uh, a lot of people in. I need to see all of you hit the like button. Everybody yeah, that's in here. It doesn't cost you anything. Hit the like button. Let's uh, play that algorithm game and share. And if you're not subscribed, subscribe. Come on and follow Dr. Carr at Africana Carr on Twitter. Let's get his Twitter followings up as well. Uh, we got a family. We started off talking about community and family. Uh, that's been a common thread. Let's welcome in the Corzine family. Oh, the whole family. Dr. Hello. Carr. Hey, what's going on? Oh, How are you guys? Where are you? Can you see us all? Mm-mm. Whatever, Jason. Oh, How are you? It's the whole crew. We spend time with you and Professor Hunter and Dr. Carr. You are my crush. My husband is alpha. I told him if I would have got you first, if I was at Tennessee State, he would have been in trouble, Dr. Carr. You might. I love a smart man. So we spend a lot of time with you guys. And the to my sorors, yes, Dr. Carr, you were on point with the uh, history of Delta Theta, the part about we we split. We, 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 we wanted something else. So that part is true. Um, and oh, so, oh, good. I'm glad to know. See, you want point. You want point. You want point. You want point, right? Because I was in the chat like, now what you say, Dr. Carr? Um, and so um, my I have my 10-year-old here, and he has a question for you. Oh, so my Jace, you ask a question? What's your name, brother? This is Jace. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Something is wrong. I think the, 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 the vibe, something is going wrong. Say it again. This is Jace. J Jace. Jace. J A C E. J A C E. Jace, my man. I'm sorry. I'm something is wrong. How you doing, brother? Hey, hurry up, man. I need a replacement. I see you guys with glasses. I mean, so we need you to come and sit in this chair in a minute, man. I, I give you, I give you about ten years, but um, you might cut it down, Lord. Anyway, what's going on, brother? Hi. Yes. Hi. Um. So I have a question for you. Which is why do white people make black people do their work even though they could do it themselves? Wow. Well, let me ask you a question, Jason, if you don't mind. How old are you, brother? 10. You're 10. Okay, you must. Okay. You know what? You forgive me to pause it for a minute, man. My nephew, Ellington, who is now an 18 year old, when he was 10 years old, he came to stay with me here in DC. And we went around to some of the old plantations where the presidents used to live. We went to Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Monticello. We went to James Madison's plantation, Montpelier. Montpelier. But let me say this to you, uh, Jace. On Thomas Jefferson's plantation, he was 10 years old. He, we were with, I was with Dr. Dana Williams, who I mentioned earlier, aka her nephews, Thomas and Will. And I had those three boys out there and we stood there and we talked about the fact that at 10 years old, Thomas Jefferson had black boys, my nephew's age and your age, Jace, making nails on the plantation called Monticello. When you go there now, it's a beautiful buildings and they talk about Thomas Jefferson's a great architect. He didn't build those buildings. Little boys your age made the nails to put together the buildings at Monticello. And I told them, boys, I don't want y'all ever forget this. The reason he did that is because he couldn't do it. And <laughs> you, know what I'm saying? you can draw all the plans in the world, but you need, and I want you to think about that, Jace, because even at your age, you and your sister, even at y'all's age, and we, we're going to pause there, and I hope you want to do some research about children during enslavement. There's books by Wilma, Wilma King called Stolen Childhood. 
that talks about the history of young boys and girls of African descent during enslavement. The expertise that we brought here from Africa, that we passed on to our children, is why they wanted us to do the work. And so the reason they did it is because they wanted to make profit. And they never, let me tell you something, brother. If Tom Jefferson were here right now looking at us, his whole head would explode. Why? Because in his wildest dream, he would not believe that not only would we survive, <laughs> but we would look back and say, now we're getting ready to rewrite the whole thing and keep doing what we was doing before you interrupted us. We built this entire criminal enterprise. And if we have to take it apart brick by brick and build it up differently, we've shown we can do it because we did it for them. They came and got us for our gifts. Yeah, they came and got us. But what, what you interested in studying, bro? Mm, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> well, you like math and you like yeah, science. Yeah, I like science and math. That's pretty cool. Ah, you know what? I, I, I think I suspect why it's hard for you to answer. With a brain that big, you don't have to pick, brother. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do. That's how the ancient Egyptians did it. They wouldn't like you say like science or math or literature or music they would say what are you doing learn it all fits together so the problem in fact miss hunter would tell you this karen would tell you this we we were talking to our friend michael harriet who was homeschooled out of south mm -hmm. carolina and he mm -hmm. said he didn't realize he wasn't supposed to keep going in times tables till he got to the regular school and they stopped at eight and he was like wait you supposed to stop so the trick at this age, and I see you got the right parents for this. Right. Don't put no ceiling on that. You just keep you keep exploring everything you are interested in and just keep building. And later on, get somebody put a label on it. So I'm glad you can't answer that question. That means, you, that means your mind's too big to fit in them categories. That, that's a beautiful thing, brother. <laughs> I appreciate Thank that. You. I love Thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. Love y'all. See you soon. Thank no, you. we love you. I'm telling you. We are. You, we have a date with you guys every Saturday. Every Saturday. And I'm running around the house going, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what she said? We've been saying those things. And I'm an educator, so I'm like, how do we take this to a whole nother level? People need to know this information. Oh, no, thank you. Listen, I'm taking notes now because I got to tailor this to this. Oh, y'all, mm, 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 mm. Thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, and this is all random. You know, I just put out an email, I mean, a, a Twitter, and I'm like, who has questions, DM. And, and I just, the first three to come in, boom. Man, thank you, Corzine family. Amazing. Let's welcome in Mr. Andrew. Andrew, where are you from? And I forgot to ask the Corzine family where y'all from. Put it in the uh, chat too. Oh yeah, please put it in the chat. Yeah, where y'all from? Good morning. I am in Harlem, New York. You, you in Harlem? Brother? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How are you, man? I'm doing well, thank you. Greetings to both of you. Um, I am honored to be here. Um, this has been a, a ritual for my wife and I every Saturday make sure we're, we're a part of this. So thank you very much. Um, Karen, you know, I've read your articles in the Daily News for going back years. So, you know, we've been connected since then. I appreciate that, brother. In fact, I would say very quickly that, um, you know, I'm transitioning out now to do some, like what we're doing here, this is the most important thing we could be doing. So, you know, I, I'm going to stick around at Howard for a minute or two more, but more and more, this is really what we need to be doing. So for you to have said you read something I wrote, brother, I'm going to be doing a lot more writing. I mean, I'm moving out, you know, a lot of times. But listen, man, you, you, 
man, I, I, I'm touched. I mean, under the fact that you would even say that, man. Your folks from uh, Harlem? Where, where, how did y'all get to New York, man? No, sir. I'm originally from Jamaica. Jamaica? Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. We're, we're originally from Jamaica. So, um, yeah, you know, real, real thank, thankful. And I'm going to, I want to touch on that, what you said earlier in terms of what you're transitioning to do and how, you know, I can be of service to all of that. But um, Please. this, for for me, this class, this reasoning, as the Rasta says, this grounding as Walter Rodney is what for me, what it is for us now is what um like in like it is with Gil Noble was for me oh my in my God. early nine, uh, my late teens, early twenties. Yes. You know? And that's where I learned about Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark and people like those. So, you know, when you drop those names, because then I was able to get introduced to them, right? See them, you know, in person, you know, in lectures. And so when you talked about, you know, you being, you know, teaching or learning from them, right? Sitting at their feet. Um, I know you were my man. So oh, brother, we, we were probably in some of the same. We were probably some, some of the same. I used to go uh, 145th and Convent, the first exactly. watch. In fact, when you drop names like ASCAC and First World, it was over. It oh, was over. We've been together then. We've been with each other before. Yes, yes. Pepper, Brother Bill, all them cats, man. But here's the thing, Dr. Carr, and I'm, I'm mindful of the time. Here's the thing, too. You mentioned, you dropped a name for a hot second uh, a while back. And when you did that, I looked at my wife and said, okay, it's a wrap. Dr. Carr is my BFF. And you <laughs> dropped the name just in reference to someone else, but not into even to the work that he did. You said Dr. Amos Wilson. I'm like, okay, it's over. Oh, so, you know, he's one of those unsung heroes like a Chris Wilson. So yes. um, I want to say this um real quick. No, take yeah, I'm, lo I'm loving this, brother. Amos Wilson, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. But you yes. as as a New Yorker, you already know Amos Wilson is really the epicenter of so much of this. I'm I'm taking notes, but we need we're gonna need to talk about Amos Wilson. I have I have all his books. Oh yeah, I, and he's and he's still doing stuff, man. They and still, they as still a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I just recently spoke to his partner Sababu, who's still oh, putting Sababu, out his work. Yes, yes. See, yes. I don't know Sababu. I know his boy Adisa, who's now down here in the south. Adisa and Sababu, yeah, because uh, because of course, those of you who don't know, Ames Wilson became an ancestor some time ago. Yes, but sir. Sababu just put out that last one, what, like yes, not sir. even a year ago. Yes, sir. I, yeah, I just spoke to him about three weeks ago. Oh, respect to that, brother. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so for me, the power of this platform, the power of this movement that I call it, yes. um, is critical. And I want to say it this way. I own a video production company, right? So we do filming for you know different companies, organizations, and so as it continues to grow over the years, I always look for ways in which you know I can you know upscale myself. So um, about two years ago, I identified a YouTube channel from which I was able to get a lot of you know insight and education as it relates to creatives and building businesses. Yes. And this person who started it, his intention was to reach a billion people doing this kind of educational work, How, and he used to work, and I'm, you know, talking kind of fast about it. His intention is now he has a, a very successful business, but he's primarily doing this educational work on this platform. Mm -hmm. He used he used to teach at the school he went to, and one day he was driving home with his wife, and she said, "You know what? You're teaching, you know, all these people, and you're making an impact on these students, and you love what you're doing. You're good. What you imagine if you could." really reach exponentially more people, right? And no so question. and so that's what they're doing. And I say that to say that 
this is where this is where this is going. Two years ago, when I subscribed to that channel, they had probably about three hundred thousand subscribers. Right now, they 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 they're on the verge of a million. Wow! And this is the possibility and the impact that we can have, yes. right? And so, having said that, Karen, I want to say this to you, sis, that given opportunity, time, resources, availability, all of that, right? My wife and I are pledging, volunteering, where's my hand? Volunteering our services any which way we can towards this movement. I just want to yes. let you know that. Yes. And, okay. and Dr. Carr. Please, Greg, man. Once this pandemic subsides, ease up, I'm volunteering to come to DC and spend whatever time is necessary to be able to capture and tell your story and your journey so that we can put it in the archive as history so that people can talk about you the way you're teaching us now about our ancestors. Oh, brother. So I just want to put that out there. Let's let, let, let's talk, brother, because once this damn pandemic is over, you know, I would have been in New York. I used to try to get up there at least once a month to go buy all the bookstores. I don't know if you know my man Steve on 125th Street. Uh, yes, sir. To the you know, I know you know Steve. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I got to go here, Steve. I got to go by and see all the cats, man. Uh, you know, all the all the book vendors. All the, yes, so, yes, sir. So, so let's um, you on Twitter, right? Uh yes, I am. DM me, man, and then okay. and let me know what's your what's your handle? Ayandes, A Y A N D as in David, A C E. Got it. Yeah, and and real quick, speaking of speaking of um, street vendors, my wife and I just recently um, I'm gonna call it discovered this brother in the South Bronx, and he has a mobile bookstore. We're, we're not talking about Dr. Um, Crothers. Dr. Ben Clark, all really? of the books. He has a mobile book, you know, like a, you see that food truck. He has one of those. So, you know, I'm really kind of pushed. I wonder people. who that is. Has yeah. he been doing it a long time? It's it, seemingly, seemingly. And we haven't really hooked up personal, but we've talked on the phone. So I'm going to yeah, go. We need to. Go, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, those, those universes books. are small. Yeah, I'm gonna buy the books from him because you know we've kind of put a dent in the the book list we've been <laughs> we've been doing recently. Look, but for folks around the country, the world who are listening to us have this conversation, Andrew, they may not recognize how difficult it is to get some of the books by some of the people you mentioned. You mentioned Carruthers, uh, Ace, you know, uh, um, um, Amos Wilson. Those books are hard to get in part because they are controlled by black people. They're black institutions, which is one reason why it's so very exciting that we have as part of this conversation, Paul Coates, uh, the owner of Black Classic Press. Paul has been so important, but you know, um, and y'all, you you Jamaicans, I mean, you know this, um, you know, that network is so powerful. Um, in fact, so powerful in the history of this kind of work we're talking about now. And as we move to video, as we move to streaming, as we move now to YouTube and these places, you've given, man, you not only inspired but you connected it to the previous generation. I know for New Yorkers, for example, and you two, you know, Karen, New York, New York, New Jersey, the region. Was it Sunday morning that Like It Is used to come on? Nobody missed Gil Noble, the big man. I got a chance to, you know, sit with Gil Noble a couple of times before he made transition. In fact, he was there the anniversary of the passing of John Henry Clark. He came to talk. We were over at Mega Everest, my man Clinton Crawford College. You know, that was when you did public access work. Or I think Gil was on uh, he, his autobiography, what, uh, Black is the Color of My TV Tube. He writes about this. ABC. But Tony Brown had public access. Uh, Ellis Hazlett 
the, 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 the television show Soul, which is like the gold standard in many ways. Very important. Uh, there's a documentary on his, his niece has done, Melissa Hazlett. But Dr. Ben, Dr. Clark, uh, 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 South Carolina Public Television, the great um, uh, Lister Belt Middleton, the great Lister Belt Middleton down there, my man, uh, uh, Bernie Gallman, Dr. Gallman in Columbia, South Carolina, very good friends. That's where you saw Shake Under Joe. That's where you saw. And, and to come to New York, that was considered a command performance. So, yes, let's talk, brother. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking. In fact, uh, last thing I'll say about it, because there's so many memories, and this is me. I remember the first time we went to the Slave Theater to give a talk. Alton Maddox, who I love to this day. Alton Maddox, like, hey, brother, we want you to come up from Georgia, but New York or two. Alton Maddox, we want you to come up. Man, going to the Slave Number 1 in Brooklyn to talk there at the, at the Slave Theater. This is the thing that we have to recover while folks like all of us are around. Because people will write this narrative in ways that are not connected at all to what Hampate Ba called the living tradition. I encourage you all to go back through the class and find the episode where we talked about this question of the doma and the jelly. This is a living tradition. What we just heard was part of a living tradition. Mm. Karen, that was me. And it was one of the first things Paul Coates said to me when I met him, that I have to write my own story. And I realized I have written 30 plus books with other people and I have yes. not written my own. And so I started yes. doing that yes. to him. So I just want to say thank you. And thank you to all of the, the, the folks that participated and the family, the Corzine family, they're from Texas and, and Andrew, Texas, uh, Texas, Texas, Texas. And Andrew, we will be, you know, this is a collective. This is, you know, there's so many people who are watching this, who want to participate. Um, I'm working on some things. Dr. Carr is working on some things. Somebody had a question like, it, you know, what book would you write if you could write any kind of book? What, what would the topic be? You know, we'll get to all of that. There's enough time. I know folks are anxious to get all of the questions answered, but I'm also mindful of our time and your time. We got, uh, some, you know, I want this Saturday. It's your Saturday. We want to uh, wrap up. I know we have some other people that want to ask questions, but there's next week. And I just want to say thank you so much for uh, joining me taking my hand on this journey. This is uh, beyond what I could even imagine this was going to be. And it's because of you. So I want to thank you, Karen. Thank you. Now, I want to thank you and everybody watching. You realize you're watching because of Karen Hunter. In other words, there wouldn't be this platform wouldn't exist. Thank you and thank all this, the folks that you're recruiting in to help with the work. And thank you most of all for having the vision. Not only today, and you know, like you said, it is Saturday, but as Dr. Obenga, my another of my Jackness, who was my dissertation supervisor, shake on the jokes running, buddy, buddy. As he would say when he would call me at two o'clock in the morning to have me look over some page that I didn't typed up for him that he's correcting, and it's his like tenth language. English is his tenth language, and he's looking like you missed a footnote. I said, Dr. Obenga, it's two thirty in the morning. What, are you up? He said, It's our life. <laughs> so in other words, I mean, so so if, if, if we weren't here talking, I'll be somewhere in one of these books. So I appreciate that. But also for the overall arc and thrust of everything you do. I mean, for those of you who haven't, y'all need to check check some of these conversations up with Randall Pinkett. Look at that. Look, 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 look at how Karen is curating this collective. That's what Rosa Parks and them were doing. We don't have to agree on everything, but it's important that we come together on our common objectives. And so I want to thank you, sis, because mm. you get, you're giving us all a renewed lease on life. And you're certainly giving it to me because this now I can see a path forward 
to doing the kind of thing. And today's comments, listen, I'm going to be floating. I'm gonna be floating. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's amazing. It's all God. It's all the ancestors. Let me thank because uh, I keep forgetting to thank the team, Kareem and Donica, uh, Renee, Renee, who I ain't even asked to come in. She's a moderator. She jumps in from Switzerland and and Ninja Warrior. Y'all better be careful in them comments. Uh, Yara, um, I just want to thank all of the folks that are here and please thumbs up, subscribe, share. Please. We'll see y'all next week. Doctor Carr, I love you. Love you too, sis. Talk to you then. All right.